Welcome to Encounter. This is a podcast and radio show where we seek to encounter Christ, culture, and community. And in this week's episode, we sit down with Pastor Jeff Brower from Wellspring Church. He is a returning guest that we were really excited to have on because of his knowledge of the Bible and because he is able to speak truth into us every single time that we we sit down with him. And in this episode, we look at the role of Israel today. We look at biblical prophecy. We talk about it from a few different vantage points. And our goal is to, at the end of the day, try to understand the Word of God a little bit better and to know Jesus a little bit more so that we can serve Him, we can know Him, we can we can live out the, the Great Commission even better. So we thank Pastor Jeff for coming on and for... Uh, just generally the ministry that we have here, that at the end of the day, we're just a bunch of guys sitting around talking about the Bible and hoping that God will choose to use us and choose to use this this podcast. And um, in that, we rely on the Holy Spirit. We rely on God to choose to make fruit from this ministry. And so as a part of that, guys, I invite you to pray for us and to encourage us and to sharpen us as listeners. So um, you are a part of this ministry as much as we are. And um, we're just really thankful that God is allowing us and choosing us to partake in it for the time being. So pray for us. And um, we look forward to seeing where God's going to lead us next. All right, so tonight we have Pastor Jeff Brower from Wellspring Church here. We just checked he was on for episode 49, and now we're on episode 110. So we're digressing a little bit in the multiplication here, but we're getting close close. So we've wanted to have Jeff on multiple times since, but he's a very busy guy, and uh, we want to you know respect his time. So even, even tonight, I tried to offer him coffee, but he already brought it. So very little to offer other than conversation <laughs> in the Bible. So we're fortunate to be able to work through and talk uh, about the Bible a little bit tonight. Maybe we'll hit on some kind of key topics, but one of the, the, the main focuses that I'm interested in hearing from you, because if someone is uh, a pastor of a church, uh, they probably go through, and I'm assuming this, they probably go through a process unless they're planted from a direct denomination. Like say you're like Lutheran and you're planted by the Lutheran you know, community at that point, You've kind of just decided to, that you b- agree with everything Lutheranism believes in, right? Like whatever that is. Um, so there's this process um, there where it's like I kind of just abide by whatever it is, or at least I respect. But if you're if you're be planting or starting a new church where you're not directly branching off of something, then you may have support from churches, but you have to really get down to what is God calling me and what what theology is God calling me to in, in the church that I'm going to lead and plant. And so that process is probably rigorous and a little daunting, you know. Um, and as believers, we're constantly learning and growing. And and there are obviously certain um, theologies and scriptures that I, I I know to be true. So there's no reason to deviate, like Christology, what Christ did, uh, birth, death, resurrection. You know, all those things are just so in stone that there's no reason to review them. You know, in terms of looking for what. Um, but there are certain ones that we want to like really if you were to sit down you'd be making choices at some point right like because there's a lot of parts of the bible that um you have to you know pray let the holy spirit guide and and really do your study 
analyze it from a, a 20 different sides and then just say, God, what do you have for me? And kind of lay it out. So my question is just kind of start off the night is like, what was your process of, of when you were planning Wellspring of finding out what your actual theology and mission statement for the church was? Yeah, good question. And thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so uh, just a little history background. I I grew up in a Christian family, so I did have somewhat of a, a foundation. I went to Pilgrim Academy. Uh, you know, I had somewhat of a biblical foundation. And, of course, with that sort of, you know, background viewpoint. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, and uh, I never, at the same time, I never really was, um, ever had a thought in my mind that I would become a pastor one day or anything like that. Um, but when God got a hold of my life at 21 years old, I really just had a deep hunger for Scripture. I uh, just really wanted to know what the Bible actually taught and meant and never really felt like I really understood it other than the Bible verses that, you know, you're taught to memorize and the few scriptures that you learn when you're a kid, whatever it might be, mm. and the Bible lessons and everything else. Um, so I I, uh, I got really hungry for the Word, started going to Bible school, started really wanting to, to understand, and for the first time in my life really felt like the Word of God was changing my life and my heart. And from that point on, I just I had a heart and a desire to want to share the Word of God from more of a more of an experiential side of things like I can't believe this is all, all the answers are right here and the, the truth really does set you free and mm -hmm. it's like there's so much in here that, that I felt like where where has it been my whole life and mm -hmm. there was a part of me that was almost like so, somewhat upset like why didn't anybody tell me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm -hmm. like but then the other side of it I think later as I as I sort of uh, matured I'm still maturing I will say in my faith I came to realize that a lot of it was just I, in my own blindness. It was it was there the whole time. I just wasn't able to see it, you know. So, no fault to anybody else. It's just when when I finally discovered it, I just wanted to tell the world, and and uh, and so I started doing that, and 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 eventually just felt this call to ministry. Um, one of the one of the places that I felt as though I had the best understanding of the. The simplest Bible teaching was through Calvary Chapel. Um, I grew up with the um, the uh, well. I grew up with a in a Baptist denomination, and then also um, the uh, uh, Trinity Alliance, which is, which is an alliance. Uh, yeah, you know, church, and then uh, so they're, they're solid churches and everything. Uh, I got a good rounded view of all these other things, but when I when I started uh, this one job in, um, this one job in, in the South Jersey, I was driving like, a, a half hour every day and Calvary, Calvary satellite radio was on every day. And I remember just hearing some of these guys preach. And for the first time I'm like, man, the Bible makes sense and it comes alive. So I get into some verse five, you know, much more verse by verse kind of teaching that way. And, um, and so I, I really felt like that was the style that I fit out of all the other styles when it comes to church ministry models, mindsets, and, uh, and eventually was ordained through um, Pastor Vince uh, at Calvary Hamilton. And uh, we're not a Calvary chapel, but that's basically our same exact philosophy, 
sort of like the same family. I'm like the oddball cousin, if you will. You know? <laughs> um, so with that, with that vein, uh, because I really resonated with the majority of the, the uh, you know the the philosophy of ministry and the Bible teaching and the framework by which they they interpret the Bible, uh, we came up with a statement of faith when it comes to what it is that we believe. I actually just pulled it up, mm. and so one of the things that that uh, that we talk about in our statement of faith, obviously, is you know, the, the, the close-hand issues, which is what you just referred to as the things that you don't need to debate over, you don't need to talk, you know, whether or not this, this is true or not. Like, these are, this is what makes you a Christian. We mm-hmm. call these close-hand issues. And then there's mm-hmm. open-hand issues like eschatology, which is one of those things where I can have a brother that maybe sees eschatology completely different. We're both on the way to heaven. Uh, we both uh, believe in the essentials of the faith, but we may have some differing views about eschatology but as a church now uh we have to come up with a statement of faith not not it doesn't have to be as strict as as maybe um, some people might think you need to make it but we we do have to have at least some sort of a framework by which we see all things scripture if we're going to be unified and uh so when it comes to eschatology what what i would refer to myself and this this is something i'm sure we'll talk about but I would refer my, to myself coming from a, a premillennial framework, and uh, and we can talk about the nuances of you know classic premillennialism and and um, you know the the later uh, dispensational premillennialism as well, which I wouldn't put myself in. I'm kind of like a mismatch of everything, so we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. But but like I even left it loose in the in the statement of faith where it says things to come. We believe in the rapture and the personal visible premillennial return of Christ um, to earth and the establishment of his kingdom and the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal blessing and the righteousness and the endless suffering of the wicked. Um, And I don't know if you noticed, but I did leave it somewhat vague when it says the rapture. Um, I didn't specifically say pre-tribulational rapture. I just said we believe in the rapture and the premillennial return of Christ, just to let people know, hey, there's room for disagreement when it comes to post-mid or pre-tribulational. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a pre-trib guy, and I'll explain to you why and uh, and how I see things, but when it comes to our framework for what our church believes and teaches, not to say there's not other frameworks that I can be friends with and come in and, and dialogue and we can, we can be partners in, in other things, but when it comes to our church, we're not amillennial. We're not post-millennial. We're coming from a pre-millennial framework. Uh, and so that that's basically how we've established mm. our church, just so people understand this is the this is the framework by which we're teaching things. Yeah. And so there might be some people, there's probably some people in our church that would maybe disagree, and they, they may even be able to lead a Bible study. They may be able to do something else. Um, but when it comes to eschatology, I may ask them, that you know to refrain from trying to 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 deviate from our premillennial framework uh, mm-hmm. the reason that I leave room is because I myself had gone through my own sort of searching for you know for the truth um because i don't I've never been the kind of guy that just wants to just believe what everybody told me to believe mm-hmm. you know? 
I don't want to just believe something because it kind of this is what my grandfather believed or what what the Baptist Church believed teaching me. So I, I went through my own, I don't want to say crisis of faith, but there was a period in time where I looked at all the different frameworks. Uh, still to me, premillennial is the, is the one that makes the most sense, and I can explain that for anybody who has questions. But then when it even comes to the timing of the rapture, uh, you know, I went I went through a, a mid-trib season. I went through a post-trib season. And then th- through thorough studying the scripture, I ended up landing back at a pre-tribulational rapture view. And I'm more firm and convinced that that's what it is now than, than I've ever been, just through studying of scripture. But I wanted to come to that conclusion myself. I didn't want somebody to just tell me that. I really wanted to own it and have the reasons why it clearly makes sense to me. Because I, I started hearing the other sides of the arguments. And I think it's healthy to actually get out of the echo chamber of whatever view you're in. And so that's why I actually like to leave open, you know, yeah. just the room to be able to dialogue and discuss these things. I hope that makes sense. No, yeah, for sure. And that's what we wanted to do tonight and you know, yeah. talk about these different angles. Um, so... Uh, just so for the listeners who may not be as like versed in the terminology, can we like define some of these terms? So mm-hmm. pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill. Um, then there's the more umbrella terms on top of that, which are covenantal and dispensational. Um, and just for the record, uh, there's um, – and you could probably fill in some other names. But I was uh, reading up um, this week about which which kind of mainstream – pastors that have a lot of influence in our country like what where they fall just just in general like i looked at macarthur like john piper and it was interesting to see how much of a variety there was even in those guys like i know um like john macarthur calls himself a dispensational isht um so like he's he's he believes in the time periods and the dispensations which are you know how god relates to different people throughout history um but there's parts of it that he does not believe in as a movement and as a theology and he kind of handpicks and john piper calls himself a new um, covenant theologist, so he believes that he's a, um, a covenantalist, but that there, but Israel does have a special place. So yeah. it's he like, would be within a premillennial framework too, yes. but he would be more of a post-tribulation guy. So he would like or the post-rapture, the role of the yeah. church, and is where he's like mm-hmm. where he falls in covenantal, where he believes in replacement theology mm-hmm. um, up until a point where he still thinks on the side Israel has just been kind of sidestepped. Um, and brought to the end. So um, that was a brief synopsis I, I read about a couple of them. But it was interesting. I was expecting where, because, you know, I, I do respect them in their Bible knowledge. So specific, like John MacArthur, I grew up at a CMA. So I do respect what he has to say, like whether I agree with him on everything or not. And I, I don't believe so. But I, I, I 90% of it I, I love, you know, and I've learned a lot from him. Um, and still, he's like in the past 10 years, he's added the ish to ist, you know, so he's still growing and he's like 79 years old. Um, so this isn't like a, a crazy conversation. This is like what mainstream mm-hmm. Bible-believing people are doing, and they're much older than us. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so, well, all right. Uh, yeah. No, I was just going to have a uh, – okay, yeah, but you said you wanted to Yeah, let's talk through the terms it. a little bit. Okay. So yeah. what is a um, – let's start with the umbrella terms, and we'll work our way down. So what is a covenantalist, someone who uh, believes in covenantalism? I guess you would just take the – Explain them both together. And it, it, a covenantal main, the main the differences between the book covenantal versus dispensational is your view of Israel and its prophetic significance of the end time. Uh, if it has one, then if you believe that it has one, then you're probably a dispensationalist. 
and then if you if you do not, then you're probably covenantal. Okay. Um, so it's, their main differences are on the view of Israel. So that like, so and when I say a, Israel, I mean just because I'm sure nuances will be like biological, genetic, old national, covenant Israel, yeah. national national Israel. Okay. So looking at so covenantalism though we have the, it's broken into two covenants, which is different than dispensationalism, right? There's a law and then grace, right? What? So covenantalism. There's two covenants. Yes, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The yeah. Old Covenant and the Old Covenant. They call and new that covenant. law and grace. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Just like that's the same in dispensationalism. Okay. It's the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay. So they. I mean, it's not the same technically though because the uh, the dispensationalist has seven time frames. Dis- dispensations and it's not. They believe that grace was from start to finish. Oh no, no! Yeah, it's the same. Was, yeah, it's the same covenantal. Yeah, it's, grace is throughout the scriptures, but the God's. Um, uh, it's just it's not a, it's not a difference in grace. It's a difference in like I don't know how to explain it. There's just the the old covenant corpus and and institute of of biological national Israel mm-hmm. and how he through Israel blessed the world. In, in which we get into the new covenant, mm. you know, as as Jeremiah thirty one would say, like the old and the new covenant. But okay. grace is the God is the same God. It's the same God, same grace. Mm. Um, just using different ways. I mean, the, like uh, like Paul would say in Colossians, you know, uh, the Sabbaths, the the new moons, the festival. They're all shadows of things to come. Mm. So they all had a temporal significance for the permanent solution. All that being fulfilled in Christ. Mm. So that are there any other? I mean, because we're these are deep terms that we're kind of not breaking down at all. Like we got the difference just Israel. Is there anything else you can tell me about either of those well, thought it, processes? That I think we're going to get into the nuances, but that would change how you view so much of Scripture. So that's I mean, uh, yeah, you wanna, yeah. Then, if you wanna, yeah. Yeah, I would say like um, so even like the terms that we're we're saying like. Um, I, I think it's just I hate putting myself into a box. Yeah, so I, yeah. it bugs me to even like have to because I I wouldn't refer to myself as a dispensationalist. Although I look at the 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 idea of dispensationalism and I go, I mean that kind of makes sense. But I wouldn't bound I wouldn't mm-hmm. like bound God into having to you know right. he can't bleed into other ways of yeah. working. But it does kind of seem like there's you know so with. You know, dispensational, the, the dispensational viewpoint is a variant viewpoint of the pre-millennial view, uh, 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 however, though. So you have, let me just kind of back up here. So when it comes to eschatology, you have you have three main frameworks that you, you can see eschatology, and there's probably more, but I'm just going to kind of reduce it down into the millennium is the thousand years uh, spoken of in Revelation 20, right? So premillennial view is that you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back before the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Uh, where, where before? Is it seven years before? Is it three and a half years before? Is it right at the end? That's, that's the debate between what we would say, someone who is a pre, mid, or post. Like, they're all thinking within a premillennial framework, mm-hmm. right? So you have a lot of people that think within a premillennial framework, like you say, John, John MacArthur, which would be a pre-tribulation mm-hmm. guy. He's a, he's a seven-year prior. But then someone like 
Uh, who was the other guy you just mentioned? Piper, Piper right? Mm-hmm. So he would – I believe he is a pre-millennial is framework, but he's a post-tribulation. Like he believes it's happening. Like you go up, we come down, same time. Mm-hmm. Now, when you when you dialogue with people that have that framework, you really can make sense of a lot of things. Where it gets complicated is you listen to other people like uh, David Platt, for instance, who would be uh, – I believe he's an amillennialist. Um Who's the other guy? Who's who's some of these other guys? Like if you get if you can name a few, I, like, I, I don't know. Francis know. Chan is. I'm thinking uh, like big pastors. Yeah. Francis Chan used to be a pre-trib, pre-millennial. I don't know where he is today. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, if if you if you kind of look at a lot of these guys, um, I think really what you can tell right away is what do they believe about Israel tells you a lot about what their framework is. So if I hear somebody saying, because you hear a lot of this right now, like Israel has absolutely nothing to do with Bible prophecy, everything going on. Even if Israel rebuilt a temple today and they started sacrificing tomorrow, it would mean nothing, you know, biblically speaking. I know right away that 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 is an amillennialist talking because they don't believe that Israel has anything to do with anything anymore, right? So there's, but, but there's so many nuances within it. So, So let me just back up. You have premillennial framework, and by framework I mean the way that you actually view eschatology, right? When Jesus' return is coming back, it's either going to be premillennial before the millennium, which is a, a literal approach to Scripture. We're going to take the Scripture literally, what it means what it says, unless it tells us that it doesn't mean what it says, it means something else. We're going to believe it. it's mm-hmm. literal. Uh, then you have postmillennialism, which is the millennium already happened, and so that, that's going to come with a framework of Jesus comes back after the kingdom is now established and the world is actually going to get better and better. The influence of the gospel is going to permeate into the whole world and we actually get the world ready for Jesus' return. And when the, when the church actually gets a hold of everything, then at the post-millennium, it's not a literal thousand years necessarily, it's a... You know, it's just a, 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 a symbolic t- time period. Then Christ will come back. And then amillennialism is similar but different because amillennialism is everything that we've been going through and everything that we're going through right now. It's all right now, spiritually speaking, uh, Revelation 20 is basically an overview of everything in Revelation, right? So it's like um, Satan is bound. He's he's no longer deceiving the, deceiving the nations right now. Which we can look at uh, Revelation twenty, and and we can mm-hmm. I can show you why I don't believe in amillennialism. But amillennialism, it's like you know agnostic or ah, uh, um, you know it, it, um, someone who doesn't believe in a, in a millennium at all. So hmm. um, you know someone who doesn't believe that there's a literal thousand years. It's just a symbolic way of speaking that the the reign, the kingdom is already here. The kingdom has come now in the church. So typically someone like uh, a David Platt or someone who, which again, I think these are great Bible teachers and mm-hmm. I really respect these guys, but they're going to, to have a completely different framework on how they see the return of Christ. Um, uh, does that make sense? Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I agree with you said about not being stuck in a framework. I mean, I, I think that way almost about everything. Like, I, 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 especially even for politics, like, I don't I, – I'm not shy about talking about things that happen to f- spoil, spill into, like, the political realm. But I, 
I hate being, oh, you're a Republican. You're a Republican or a Democrat before you start the conversation so they know like what your weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When yeah. it's like, oh, I have, yep. some, I have conservative values. I have some conservative values because mm-hmm. they line up the Bible. But like I really don't like that candidate that, that says they have an R in front of their name. You know, um, And I think it's similar for um, Christians. We Like, oh, you are AG. Oh, you do that weird thing with the tongues. You know, like there's this like weird, you'll yeah, put you somebody in a box yeah. so you can find the weakness right away. Yeah. And, but like for the point of defining the terms though, isn't to put people in a box, but it's for, we're going to be using them as reference points. Like <clears> I follow in pre-trib and people are like, what the heck is that? It's like, well, I'm pre-trib, but I have this little nuance because this, this scripture kind of jumped out at me, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. nuanced conversation about it, which I think is, is lost today. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's a lot I could say, too, about all the different the views, but those are the three main frameworks uh, when it comes to eschatology. There's a couple other ones. There's there's even nuances within, like, preterism, partial preterism, which is basically this this view that everything Jesus said in Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's nothing more. And a lot of amillennials will be a preterist. They'll, they'll be... Where they believe that there that all of the prophecies have been fulfilled in the first century, and and again, that's that's taking that view. Now, when it comes to premillennialism, there are two classic. There's classic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Classic premillennialism was pretty much the the main viewpoint for the first three hundred years of church history was classic premillennialism. If you read anybody's, what anybody believed for the Mm -hmm. first 300 years, maybe even 350 years, they believed in classic premillennialism. And within classic premillennialism... Is that three times fast? What's that? Is that three times fast? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. These words are getting tongue tied It's just, uh, they believed that Jesus was coming back, that the millennium was yet to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is the first three, you know, we have writings from different people from, from the first three centuries. Um, and some of them had different beliefs in when the timing was, uh, and then, you know, when it, the timing was of the rapture and how the rapture was going to take place. And by rapture, I mean the time when Jesus, you know, First uh, Thessalonians four, where he uh, catches up the church. Because uh, there's a lot of people that say there is no rapture, but the truth is, everybody believes in a rapture. It's just a matter of what what the rapture looks like. Everybody believes that the church is going to be taken. There's going to be a generation on earth. If they don't believe that, that's where I would disagree with the Bible. Is there's going to be a generation living on planet Earth that will not experience death? It tells us in First Corinthians 15 that will be changed in a moment, in an instant. First Thessalonians 4 says that uh, they will be caught up. The dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together. So there is, there is this, this uh, generation on earth that will not experience death. So the first three centuries, basically classic premillennialism was the, was the main viewpoint, that Jesus was coming back before the thousand-year millennium. Uh, right around the, the time of Augustine, or Augustine, however you like to pronounce it, um, he well, he started out as a classic premillennialist, but then he ended up ch- changing his view. And some people believe he actually coined the amillennial viewpoint, hmm. and that became basically the law of the land through the Roman Catholic Church. Some people believe partly because he was a government-hired theologian, which he was very good at th- theology in many areas. But like, if what your theology says is that the 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 kingdom of Rome will be destroyed by by Jesus, and mm. you work for the Roman government, you might be a little bit tainted. I don't know, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying. So that so that became the the basic way that people began to view scripture. 
by that point, by the third century, Israel was no longer a nation. It wasn't, it, there was no way they could see that as being like, how, right. how in the world could Israel ever come back? It's obliterated. It's been, it's been 300 something years at this point. So amillennialism takes traction to say it really isn't speaking about a literal thousand years that we are now reigning and ruling. Satan is bound. And, and partly the, the, uh, the uh, belief of uh, the Catholic papacy was able to take root in that framework mm. because uh, they really were, you know, married, you know, church and state were married. It was like, you know, Christians had the power of the world, if you will. Mm. And that never goes well, by the way. Nope. Uh, Christianity wasn't, wasn't made to... For, to have for human government for, for human government to yeah. have power it always gets corrupted that way so anyway uh, and then uh, there was some there was some other uh, you know frameworks within that where postmillennialism after you know the Reformation after the you know there's there's a once a thousand years is by you can't you can't become post millennial until a thousand years goes by you know yeah. they do believe in <laughs> yeah. so that becomes a new thing too um, all that to say, you know, uh, much of the reformers, Calvin, um, you know, uh, Martin Luther, uh, w were operating out of what was given to them, which was an amillennial framework. And so that's why, like most reformed people, most Calvinists, if you will, would be more amillennial or post-millennial viewpoints. The rare exceptions are people like, Piper and John MacArthur, and uh, you know, there's a few other mm -hmm. people I would say are reformed in theology. But most reformed theologians that you listen to today, if you listen to them, they re they believe in replacement theology. They don't believe they believe that the church is Israel now. There's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of framework when it comes to Israel it has anything to do with Bible prophecy, and they don't typically talk about the rapture much. Um, or the tribulation period, because even the tribulation period, according to Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, is specifically for the Jewish people, not for the church. So anyway, um, but then around the 1800s is when the premillennial view begins to get traction again. Uh, many people say that it was Darby that really... Uh, John Darby that really popularized it, which I would agree with it. That is, you know, when it comes to the Schofield Bible and Darby, that is, that was really the, the printing press that got it going where people started to see it. But I don't believe it was because it was just made up. It was just people started to see the world the way the way it was moving, that there's these Jews, you, you've got the Holocaust happening mm -hmm. right after this, and you've got all of these people that seems like God's, God's opening people's eyes to Bible prophecy, and they're starting to read the Scripture to say, wait, maybe this isn't about the church. Maybe these are literal promises about the nation Israel. And so in the, in the, 19, in the late 1800s and the 1900s, there's all these writings that you can go back and look at where these people are saying, I actually think the, the Bible is prophesying that Israel will be reborn again as a nation and that these prophecies are actually yet future for literal Israel, not the church. And so then when these people are saying these things, in 1948, Israel becomes a nation, and that's the re that's the main reason that pr the the premillennial viewpoint has now, you know, it's it's starting to get a little bit of pushback now. But for the last, you know, 
70 years or however however it's been that's been the mainstream view because of the fact that Israel has been reborn and there's so many things prophetically speaking when you actually read Ezekiel 37 38 uh, that have lined up amazingly so and I can I can give you even some really interesting prophecies that give some amazing timelines as well one of the uh, just a cool anecdote, like I was reading, um, like when Garth does, like a, a, a kind of like you're doing a little bit of like the historical development of each of the theologies, and and I, one of the points that you, you mentioned, which um, he just expounded upon a little bit, was how the World War II was not only like the birth rebirth of of premillennialism, mm-hmm. but the death of postmillennialism, because the idea of postmillennialism is like the world is the earth is getting. Like we, your the church is getting flourishing so well, and the world is getting so much. It's like the, you're ushering in the kingdom because it's getting better and better and better. And then when like seven like seventy million people died in World War Two, it was like I don't think so, you know. And and so when they realized that you know Israel's reborn, and the world's not getting any better, post mill really faded off somewhat dramatically in yeah. terms of yeah. theology. Um, so it is interesting how like as much as it shouldn't like the the. A lot of, I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad that the, the, the Bible, like as a as a, the way that people study the, the Bible globally changes depending on the world it's in. Yeah. Rather than the reading of the Bible itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So so and that's a good that's a good point. So here's here's a thought that I've had recently is like you know I don't know if you guys are about like me like I'm thinking like okay let me look back at what the first couple centuries believed because I want to like you, you kind of have this thought like if you want the purest viewpoint you want to go back to the the closest to the source like that's kind of how i think right i don't know if you guys think that way at all but but i'm thinking okay if the first three centuries was a was a premillennial view and i i really see a premillennial view in the bible and that was somewhat of a pure view um then you could say that was actually a you know like that, that's a good you're in good standing right mm-hmm. if, if you're like believing what the first couple centuries of the of the early church believe however because uh, some people say like when it comes to like classic premillennialism with the first three centuries and now we have what we call dispensational premillennialism which we, what we have now isn't exactly the same um what i would say is actually that's that's the point because if if what the Bible actually says is uh, that when prophecy begins to unfold, it'll make more sense as you get closer to the end times, then even if you start out with the right framework, it will actually get uh, it will actually get purer the closer you get. So you, it'll actually be the purest during the clo- during the first, you know, the closest where it started, and it'll actually be the purest during the end where it where it ends. Possibly. This is just a th- working theory. So, so work with me for a <laughs> yeah, second. Yeah, it makes sense because like if it- so. So Daniel, for instance, he's you know Daniel gets this vision. I think in chapter seven, and and uh, he's and and even in chapter twelve, and the vision is like so perplexing to Daniel, and he's like can't sleep. He's fasting. He wants answers, and the and the and the angel says to him. Daniel, go your way because this prophecy is sealed up until the end times. Many will go to and fro and knowledge will increase, but you're going to rest and you'll be risen again. Like in other words, there's no way that you're going to be able to understand this because it's impossible for you to understand it from the 
from the perspective of where you are in the timeline of all of these things. But in the end, at the last timeline, all of these things will start to make sense. So again, That's a good interpretation. is, it, is like it possible that as we get closer, it begins to color in what, what you know, like the, the knowledge begins to, begins to get increased and we, we begin to understand more and God begins to give more revelation. Well, that, I actually really, sorry to interrupt, but I, no, I really like that, uh, that interpretation. So like Joe, I heard this analogy a while ago and it really shaped our, our study of the Bible for a little bit while we were going through um, the book of John. But the idea, and Joe, you can correct me, if I'm, like, mm. fill in the blanks, but mm. you know all those like old school projectors, Jeff, like the ones with like the, the, sl the slides? <clears throat> like the 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 first prophecies that the, the 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 major prophets get in the Old Testament are like the outline, right? And then you get another slide, and you slide on top, and it adds a couple details. You get some trees, and then like thirty slides in, you project your slides, you get a full picture. But one at a time, the prophecies like kind of overlay, and until you get to Christ, you're like, okay, so they they colored it in, you know? And there's there's the 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 so. Uh, the same idea of like um, the the prophets when they have a look at a sky. If you look at a skyline in Philly, like the, they all kind of look like a flat picture. Um, but that as you get closer, like, oh, that one was actually like a mile closer. That one's like actually eighty stories taller than the other one. And so the closer you get to it, the more like the prophets may not have known the timeline of their prophecies. They may not have known the immediacy or all the specific details, but they saw the projector slides. You know, and then they, they, they saw the skyline and didn't know how far each building was. And so as they get closer, though, you do. You get, as, you, as you walk up to one of the skyscrapers, you're like, oh, okay, that one's actually 30 miles past it, and you, you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, and so it's the same idea, though. The closer you get to the fulfillment of prophecy, the more you understand the prophecies. Right. Because the argument would be, well, how would the people in the first century have gotten some of it wrong? Well, because, similar to Daniel's day, there's no way they could have understood Bible prophecy uh, until they get to the actual place. You know, like the, the, the thing in Revelation where it says the whole world's going to rejoice and celebrate uh, the, at the death of the two witnesses. Like, the, the whole world wouldn't be able to see that unless everybody's got cell phones in their hands. Like, we mm -hmm. don't understand. Now we can look at that and say, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so there's just there's just certain things that I think you can, you can argue that... Um, you can argue both ways. You can argue through history uh, or you can argue through experience to say, like, actually experience can color prophecy. And God even told Daniel that would be the case, that only the people living in that last generation would really be able to know what this really means. Mm. So I have a, I have a, this is a question that kind of branches a little bit outside of the discussion about how we're having it. And so... Um, you look at like the Tower of Babel, right? Like they tried to build the tower to have access to God because they had the, an inflated sense of self and then God broke it down and made it so they were just, just unifying. And then you see Acts and the Holy Spirit coming and doing the opposite where they're united language and, and, and unified them. And then you see like for a, a short period of time, it seemed like the Holy Spirit kept everyone on the same page for at least a few chapters. And, you know, as Peter's, like, just drawing from the Old Testament in the first sermon, then you see it, the Holy Spirit really, like, unifying the first church in, in, in prayer, breaking bread, and, like, it's just beautiful picture of a church on the same page, you know? And so the Holy Spirit one of has many jobs, like, comforting and helping, but one of the uh, unity, like, unity of the Holy Spirit and unity of, of the understanding of God. Is it, is it disconcerting that, let's just say, like, Jeff, like, you, you went through this whole process, studying, and you fell on, and you, let's say you labored for a year, right, just to figure this out. And you're like, this is where God has me. Is does it like give you anxiety at all that someone can, as in the same heart and same frame of mind, study the Bible and land in a different spot? 
Does that make sense? Like sure. if the Holy Spirit yeah. so inspired unity, one thing that's always like kind of not bothered me a little bit, but also, it, yeah, it's bothered me a little bit is people that I wholeheartedly respect go through a very similar process with pure hearts, just seeking to crawl to the feet of Jesus. And they, they end up at like a slightly different hill, you know? Yeah. Um, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on like that? I don't know, that idea that people can wholeheartedly seek God and be empowered by a unifying spirit and kind of end up in a little bit different places. Yeah, and that's why I do think that when it comes to eschatology, we have to leave it somewhat open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is if someone if someone has Bible scripture, if, if someone's not arguing from a tradition or history or that, that's not their argument, but it's, it's through scripture that they feel as though it's revealed – and I, I, I will befriend anybody who can bring scripture and bring a good dialogue mm. because I, I think that we should always be, uh, we should always adopt the, the belief that I could be wrong mm. in my, eschatolo- my eschatological view, or at least I have to have room for error because, I mean, case in point, like the first century was completely wrong about the Messiah's coming. They didn't see it as first and second coming, right? They saw it all together. They saw the Messiah coming as going to overturn Rome, and they all had it wrong, right? So who, why, why would I think that I'm going to have everything completely right with everything? So I, so I, I think everybody's going to be in for a surprise. Mm. When it all unfolds, we're going to be like, oh, I was wrong about that. I was right about that. I was wrong <laughs> yeah, about that. I think yeah. we're all going to be – I think there's I think there's things – there's beauty to be learned from all different perspectives. Um, you know, I also do I, – I also do think that you have to – you have to teach things from a, from a framework that makes sense to you, right? And so that's – that's why I'm like, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think there's some people that will say someone who believes in a post-tribulation rapture is a heretic. I, I would never say that. I don't think that, right? Or someone that's an amillennialist is a heretic. I wouldn't say they're a heretic. I disagree with them. Mm. But I just don't, I don't believe that they're, they're correct in their, in their reasoning. But are they still in the heart of that person? Are they still able to teach kingdom of God principles that, that God was longing worshipers, that God is longing for us to reach people for Jesus, mm-hmm. that he is coming back, that he is going to make everything right once again. Like ultimately we are the same team. We are the same breed, right? So mm-hmm. so I also think of it like this. Maybe God has purposely made it somewhat vague intentionally for us to not really know. I mean, mm. I was just reading this in Acts in Acts 1. What did he say to his disciples? He said, you know, they gathered around him and they asked him in Acts 1, 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So at the end of the day, if if there's a ministry that sees these things differently... How do I know they're filled with their Holy Spirit led is are they being witnesses in the world? Like at the end of the day, that's the Holy Spirit's mm. job is going to cause us to be witnesses for Jesus in the world in which we live. If my eschatology keeps me from being a witness in the world, then that's how I know it's wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. That's where I would say it's heresy. Mm. But if 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 I have a, a differing view of eschatology, but I can still be a witness for Jesus with this person that has a different view, I, I'll, I'll be willing to work 
like with a different church or different view. But again, as a pastor, as a shepherd of a flock, I do have to have a framework where Mm -hmm. by which I, I, I teach the scriptures and we have to be unified about around what it is that we believe that the Bible is teaching to really, to really teach it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so yeah, I, is it, is it possible? I think, I think it's also possible that people can be sincerely wrong and think that God's leading them in a certain way. I, and that, that includes me. I can be sincerely wrong. But you're sincere. Right. But that doesn't make it right. No, no, but I'm saying the sincerity is the the heart check. Yeah, it is. Um, But that's what I'm saying though, is if my sincerity if my sincerity is like I'm sincere, I'm sincerely wanting to make this, you know, fit, fit this like square, you know, this this square peg into a round hole. Like that's not a good sincerity, right? But mm-hmm. if my sincerity is I want to glorify God and I want people to meet Jesus at the end of the day, but I don't see this any other way. So this is how I'm teaching it. Like I feel like that. Like I want I want to leave room for people to be able to 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 see things the way that they can, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. I think it gets dangerous when we start casting stones at other at other eschatological viewpoints and uh and making you know calling people heretics. Um and I and I see it a lot like even this under you know even this undermining right now with with everything going on in Israel, you know, uh it, there's just a lot of people that that are just kind of like even in the amillennial camp right now, just throwing a lot of mud at anybody who believes Israel does have a, a place like in volatile. God's heart. Yeah. yeah, and it's there's just there's hostility on both sides. I just don't like the hostility. I don't like the mud slinging. I don't. I like. I like. Hey, let's dialogue. Let's talk. Let's bring open our Bibles. Let's let's look at the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Like I think what happens in a lot of these camps, if you will, is we end up fighting for our traditions and our little tribes more than what the scripture says. And mm-hmm. and we just become like this little tribal thing where we all get together and throw mud at each other. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think that's healthy. So that's, that's <laughs> I what know. I would say. We, we, I just, I don't want to turn into that. I don't want to be that guy, mm-hmm. but you know. Yeah. So I, I, so we have so many different places we can go because we covered so much ground. Thanks for doing that background. That was, that was, mm-hmm. that was, that was good definition. <laughs> that was, that was all of your first question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a background. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, that's, it, we asked for terms and we got yeah, like, yeah, a full yeah. picture, which is awesome. Um, so I think it's healthy with all the different, uh, cause you mentioned a lot of terms like pre mid or pre a post dispensational covenantalism, preterism, hyperpreterism, right? So you got like all those kind of f- floating around. Um, let's poke holes in each of them. You know, so like, you know, so, so I don't know, Joe, did you want to share a little bit about your, your growth experience? Like, cause I know Jeff just shared about his, his pastor, Jeff, uh, his, uh, experience. You know, um, yeah, he, I mean, he said a lot of similar things, um, as far as, so like you mentioned, I think before we even started, but I grew up, uh, Catholic slash Lutheran, um, which does have an eschatological background, but no one knows about it. Like, no, it's just like in the background, um, so I just, I didn't even know anything about that uh, or really about Jesus, and then until I went to Calvary, um, and then that's you know that's where I first met Christ, and then it's ever since then it's just been in the uh, dispensational camp, and then about two years ago, I'd say, um, not that this matters, but it is what happened, so I'll just say it. Uh, I started battling real bad anxiety, and like the only way for me to like. I find a release of anxiety was just reading. 
And so I became, I just, I just continued to read and read and read. And, um, you know, I'd be reading, a, a, I have a book in one hand, Bible in the other hand, just like making sure that I was trying to be a brain. And what I started to notice was that what made me made sense more of the Bible was kind of like what you said. It was like everything that I wasn't being taught. And uh, main things were, um, I think the the glasses that you put on when you when you open your Bible, like um, so her, the hermeneutical principles to to study Scripture and to truly exegete and to not um, uh, to not make yourself the main priority and focus and um, learning. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of told not in these words, but with this um, with this backdrop that like when the the, the prophets when any when any biblical writer was writing, you know. The Holy Spirit just gave them these words, and their eyes rolled back to their head, and they just started writing. They didn't know what they were talking about. They weren't making any uh, decisions. They weren't X, Y, and Z. Um, when I, more and more I started studying, I, I started realizing that that wasn't the case. And yes, they were all Holy Spirit inspired, but um, writing into certain cultures at certain times, talking about current events, um, uh, uh, writing with the, the the first readers would understand everything that they were writing because they were coming from. Hebraic thought, um, even though, you know, uh, Greek thinking was, you know, permeating. But when I started to understand all of that, it made the Bible make so much more sense. I wasn't looking at it like, man, how does this apply to me and what's going on in the world around me? I was like, what did it mean to the first reader? And I, that's a biblical hermeneutic that I always get like, it can't mean something for me that it didn't mean for the first reader. So, um, I, you said so many things that I, and I agreed with a lot of it, and then some areas where I just disagreed a little bit. I think we're talking about prophecy, and it's the closer you get to it, the clearer it'll be. Um, that's that. There's a that's that's called there's a principle for that. It's called um, the Raz Peshar principle, which doesn't really matter, but it's just that um, Raz in, in Hebrew meaning mystery, and then Peshar meaning the, the like the revealing of it. But it was it was a, a, a understanding at the close of Malachi, and you can read rabbinic literature that like. The Holy Spirit prophetic office ceased, and one sign of the end would be when it came back. So, like you said, you, you quoted um, Acts one seven, where he says, um, at, uh, "Will it be at this time when we restore the kingdom of Israel?" And unlike other times, Jesus doesn't ridicule them. He's ridiculed Peter many times for saying, for stepping out of bounds or, or saying wrong things. He says, "It's not for you to know the times, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll, you'll have power." And then, as soon as that happens in Acts, Peter. And the apostles, Paul later, but Peter and the apostles, they have the Peshar. They are the ones. Not, not, the, not to me, not the second, third century, not necessarily the, patri- you know, the patriarchs of the, of the, of the church uh, after the apostles, but they had, to, um, had the authority um, given to them by Christ. So um, I think they had all the, um, and whether that, you know, whether different thinking creeped in and distorted things. You know, you have Gnosticism on the rise and X, Y, and Z. How the receivers interpreted that is less what I care about how than what they were writing. And um, so I think, you know, the f- first thing Peter says, he comes out and he quotes Joel 2, and he says, um, in these last days, you know, or these are the last days uh, spoken of by Joel. So it's like... Um, you know, sir, I think they had the authority. Um, and then other things. But anyway, so there's like, I, I developed like s- six or seven hermeneutical principles that like I always read the scripture through. 
and it has fundamentally changed everything that I've. It's made so many. Like I used to, I used to uh, dodge Revelation like it was the plague. I never, never read Revelation. That's one of my favorite books because for the, reading it with different hermeneutical principles, I started to understand and it, and and it made sense to me. Um, whereas opposed to I've. I've read the Tim LaHaye books. I've read the, you know, I've read them before, and I always read it, and it was just like, I, I guess, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, I guess we'll see it, so, you know. Um, and then I read it from a different uh, perspective, and I was like, oh, like that makes so much more s sense to me. So it was a more holistic, like um, everything from beginning to end, kind of made more complete sense to me, um, which to me helped me. And yeah, I, I can, I can one hundred percent be sincerely wrong, but to me, that is what. Um, when it's when the whole, the the Bible holistically sort of making more sense and like things started to weave together and everything was more connected, um, I uh, that was kind of reassuring to me that I was on the right uh, on the right path. And like you said, it was the same it was the same things. Like it started with uh, I remember when it first started. I was on my way down to South Carolina, and I had a North Carolina. I had a long drive, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to listen to. Um, like uh, the Bible project, and, and start from episode one to see how far I get. And they were saying things that challenged my upbringing. So I, you know, I, I would go check them out and um, be Bereans, and then you know, start to start not necessarily studying pastors like uh, Francis Chan, Piper, MacArthur, but studying theologians who, it's like you know, they might not pastor a church, but they study the Word of God inside and out, and and see what they had to say about what I was that was challenging me, and. Um, you know, then I started to recognize and realize how significant and how important it is, uh, the Jewishness of the Gospels, and how pivotal that is. And if you read the Gospels and the New Testament as a Gentile, you're going to come up with crazy, uh, crazy, you can come up with uh, crazy wild ideas. But the, the Jewishness of the Gospels, the understanding the culture they were speaking into, um, Made it, made it make so much more sense to me. And then especially when you get into the feast days and, you know, I, I think all biblical eschatology is, the key to biblical eschatology is in the feast days, which we know, everyone, everyone agrees on the first four all being fulfilled up until Pentecost. Uh, then we all just have our differences on the last three. Um, so that's, that's kind of been my journey. Mm -hmm. um, you guys have kind of been around for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, Part, and, and, part of the Holy, my last thing, but part of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the way the authors wrote, like once I started understanding, like, oh, they were they were making Holy Spirit inspired decisions. Then the Bible, especially the New Testament, but the Bible opened up so much more. Like, oh, he's using uh, he's using parallelism here. He's using contrast here. He is, um, you know, was, oh, I could tell he's incorporating a feast day here. He's mm -hmm. uh, uh, whatever it may be. I'm like. It made it, it adds so many underlying layers to it because yeah. I'm like, oh, I have n I've never once, I, I was at the time 31, I had never once read this from a, from a Jewish or first century mm. or Middle Eastern perspective. Yeah. I, have I have read it from a 2021, whatever the year was, 2021 American Italian perspective. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, and it's like, and when, if you do that, with, we know to do that. Not to do that with any other thing that we read. You know, when you read it, when you read a newspaper article, it's like, all right, who, what, where, when, why? You know, and, and you ask all those questions, but we don't do that with the Bible. We open it and we're like, all right, how does this affect me and my life? And yeah. it's like, well, it will once you understand, like, and, you know, yeah. one of the big things I always say is, like, how can you, how can you follow Jesus when you don't know what he was doing? 
Um, and the way to know what he was doing is to know the culture and context in which he was doing it. Like, we can take, clearly, uh, and apply so many things of what he's doing, to, but, like, it had more of a significant and deeper and richer impact when you know the culture and context of the first, of a first century, specifically first century Jew. Um, yeah, I think, so I, I'm not cutting you off. I, yeah. I just, uh, one thing that, so while I've been, and we've been along, like, you know, just his journey, you know, reading and studying, like, and, and you know, talking things out, most exposure I have to branching out have been from just conversation with Joe and, and Cole. Um, but like some of those hermeneutics are, have been enlightening to like the idea of like understanding Jewish culture fits in, fits inside of all of them, you know, mm -hmm. like all the, the yeah. terms we're talking about, but like just little ones, like the one sermon I just gave was on, you know, involves like the seat seat and like yeah. that one, mm -hmm. the, the, the bleeding woman and grabbing the train yeah. of Jesus's robe, like that came from your reading right. through that hermeneutic of understanding the culture it was in. And what that does is, is it makes Christ more magnified. Right. You know, right. in that like yeah. understanding that like that comes from a deep rooted Jewish ideology of the, mm -hmm. the corner of the robe of yeah. the person who would come one day be the Messiah. The Messiah. Yeah. Um, and like that is, you know, you talked about um, theology that brings you closer to understanding Christ and glorifying yeah. God. Like that's, that's one of the mm -hmm. hermeneutics that I, at least I learned from, you mm -hmm. know, during that process. Yeah. Um, and, 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 so, and like you said, like, uh, so yeah, so that will affect a lot of things. So like, for example, you can take a small thing like that. Like here's one miracle Jesus did. And, the Jewish background makes you understand. You can understand it at the at a, at a regular current contemporary level, but there's layers to it, you know. And then, um, but that plays in a lot when you read uh, a book like Revelation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not a, to me, you know, it's not a coincidence that like sixty to seventy-five percent of Revelation is verbatim quoted from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. And um, Daniel, with the exception, kind of, but. Uh, all three of them uh, were prophesying the judgment of, of Israel, uh, and that's what he quotes from the most. And they were all apocalyptic literature, which is a certain style and way to to write. And if you if you we none of us like we don't grow up with nobody writes. You can't go to Barnes and Noble and and, and get an apocalyptic. Li that's not an, it's not in existence anymore. So we never grow up with grow up with apocalyptic literature. So where one area where I tend to disagree is like, I think the dispensa dispensationalism has this like, uh, I get it uh, new, in its nuances, but dispensationalism has this like, they just came up with this thing. It's like, we believe in a literal interpretation unless otherwise, well, it's like, uh, you know, unless otherwise stated where it's like, well, so many, almost a lot of the time it's, 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 it's because there's, we talked about like, there's directly presenting something and there's indirectly presenting something. And um, authors did that all the time. Like they may not say it, like um, uh, the motif of the second Exodus in the Gospels, or the motif of Jesus as the second Moses. Like they never say that, but it's indirectly presented all the time. So uh, the indirect presentation of so many things, um, like in Revelation uh, per se, it, it's like I don't know that like we we uh, we have come up with this thing. It's like I believe in a literal interpretation. It's like unless otherwise. Uh, you know, a lot of for it's like I don't like I think we're missing a lot of what they intended for then because that is how they wrote. They wrote in poetry, parallelism, chiastic writing. They wrote in like all these sorts of things for a reason. They had limited paper, so they're trying to get as much as they can on a little bit of amount of paper. Mm -hmm. They would have contra and they were just that's they just grew up with that. They knew mm -hmm. what to look for and what to not look for. Um especially Holy Spirit inspired, you know. Um so uh, that shaped so many of the of the 
of the things that I, that I read, like the uh, mm. hermeneutics, basically. Um, and one of the uh, what's this for? Uh, something you might you might have to study. Uh, something S. Terry, uh, what's his name? Do you know you, that William S. Terry? He's an older guy, but he like sounds familiar. Regardless of regardless of any theology, any school, he's studied for um, hermeneutics. Uh, like his his book on hermeneutics is used in like theological. Okay. Uh, William Mystery something something like that uh, I forget but um and but he talks about a lot of these things and I just think like hermeneutics regardless of any theology what it what it leads to whatever it's like hermeneutics like need to be taught like p- pastors need to be having these or you know somebody needs Bible to be having teachers. these yeah Bible t- need to be having these these classes because I don't know I think I think the other way it just uh. It, 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 you read, you open the Bible, and you're like, "Man, what is? How? Where do I fit in here?" And, and it's like the Bible's not. It's not about you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, you know. And I think that's so. The 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 hermeneutics versus establishing a framework prior to every verse you read is is I think what what separates the Bible project from most other like Bible teachers. And I'm not saying it's better like anything, yeah. but like what makes them different is I have no idea the framework yeah. that that Tim Mackey works inside of. No idea. I, I don't know if he's pre mill, a mill post, but like he goes verse by verse. Yeah, so I, I think that would be a good question to answer. I don't know if I yeah. know for sure either, but I gather he's probably a millennial. That's that's what and, that would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. And you know and I, I love the Bible Project and 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 their their stuff as well. But you just need to know what framework they're coming from. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good question to ask when mm-hmm. you're when you're listening to them. And and I always try to find that that understanding too is where a lot of what the Bible Project colors in, which I I get a lot of great information. But a lot of what people when they when when because I, I love the, ba- the the Jewish background too. Mm-hmm. But when they're looking at the Mishnah, when they're looking at a lot of the rabbinical writings, mm. many of those writings were were the first century mm-hmm. rabbinical writings. So they don't even, I mean, they, they, they for the most part, you, you know, they were accepted to be during the time of Christ. But really the writings were, were you know, uh, after even the temple was destroyed. Yeah, correct. So, yeah. mm. so we have to even be careful, be, be, you know, I think to your point, at the end of the day, like what really landed you? What's landing me? Where are we like? What I want to know is what is what did the, what did the actual people believe when they right, wrote the right, Bible? Right. Like, because mm-hmm. I don't want to base my belief on church history. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really a, 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 a you know a house of cards mm-hmm. at the end of the day because it could, it could take just one one century for people to get off course. And then, oh, I think it got off course by Romans eleven. Yeah, I mean, Paul, really quick, and that's the thing I think. Like, people, how do I say this without like? Paul was all Paul's letters. He was writing to answer questions, and it was getting like, off course. Really, right, quick. it was getting off right, course because yeah. a lot was happening very mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah, and um, and things were coming in as mm-hmm. Christ said, like things were coming. Gnosticism, Corinthianism, Docetism, like all these things were creeping into the church, which is why they had to write back. Right. Um. So like, or visit consistently, and you know, Paul would say, "I I I want to get to you guys. You know, I might not be able to, so I'm writing this letter, but you know, uh, and so yeah, you're right. It's like all this was already." creeping in right um, but it's that's why i think like what are the apostles saying it, it, you know yeah at the end the of the day what did they built believe? on the foundation of the right and that's really when i when i landed where i land that's really what yeah. i believe is what what did it for me like what how did they write when they wrote what how did what, what was the urgency when mm. it comes to their belief of jesus coming back at any moment it seems like they all believed he was coming back in their time 
That's how I read it anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a number of things that we can look at. At the end of the day, though, what does the Scripture say? Because that's really the only thing we have as, as infallible, infallible, like, right. yeah. mm-hmm. scri- you know. So we can, we can weigh. I'm, I'm just saying that we, we can weigh in church history. We can look at all. A lot of people want to argue church history. To me, that never really mattered that much mm-hmm. to me, you know. It's, it's healthy to know that a lot of people are, are operating out of a framework that came from a certain historical moment. Um, whether or not it's correct, I think every single one of them has flaws. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I was trying to say is like, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. we need to have somewhat room. But when it comes to like, when you, when you talk about, uh, you know, the, I, I think that's a good point to say, like the, the idea of it's literal unless otherwise stated. I think that's probably like a, uh, like a broad brush way of saying what I, what I would believe, uh, when it comes to like, hermeneutic of, mm-hmm. of, of scripture. So I wouldn't mean, what I wouldn't mean by that is like, you know, you take the book of revelation, for instance, when, when it says that there was a lamb with seven eyes standing at the center of the throne, right. like, mm-hmm. was it, it is, we know that's talking about Jesus, right? right. We, mm-hmm. we Like we wouldn't believe that like Jesus is an actual lamby mm-hmm. with like seven eyes. Like it's, it, there's a symbolic, but I do believe it's literally Jesus that's and the, and the center of the throne in heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. So we would call that figurative literal. Right. So what I'm saying though is it's not an allegory of saying like, you know, so 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 the difference between literal and allegorical is really what I'm what I'm saying that I that I would fight for a literal interpretation of things rather than an allegorical interpretation, which yeah. amillennialism takes an allegorical approach, which is to say where 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 you can make anything you can you can turn anything to mean anything. So so Revelation, for instance, I love the book of Revelation myself, but if you if you were to read Revelation, the book of Revelation is is what I would call a figurative, literal book. So it's figuratively speaking about what's literally going to happen. And 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 so it's not I think part of our Western framework even in trying to understand a biblical framework is that even our own thinking is, is this like either or mentality yep. of like, mm-hmm. I, all I think is in linear either or. And so it's either gotta be this or it's gotta be that. And that's what I've really been trying to disciplining, discipline myself out of is, mm-hmm. is like, here's all the boxes. Everybody says you gotta be one of these. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I don't like, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get out of that yeah. because that's not how they thought. Like mm-hmm. that's half the problem is, even trying to understand uh, Judeo, you know, uh, framework, mm-hmm. it's like I'm only trying to understand it through a Western framework. So I don't even know how good I'm doing with that. Right, 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 right. yeah. Mm-hmm. So even that, it's like I, I always have to have this fear and trembling with everything I'm trying to do and, mm-hmm. and understand. So, so I agree with your when you say like I, I, you know, like if I'm reading. You know, and I'll, I'll get back to Revelation in a second, but like Matthew 24 is probably the classic, you know, text when it comes to prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. And you can read a statement in Matthew 24 with a preterist viewpoint of taking that approach to say, what did Jesus mean when he said it to the hearers in his day? But if that's the only way I see it, I think I can be an error too. Because to believe that he's only speaking to the people in his day, but he also might not be speaking down the corridor of time to the future people in the in the rebuilt Israel and the rebuilt ter- temple in Judea when they will literally have to flee from the mountains during the tribulation period, when they will have the book of the Bible that Jesus wrote in Matthew 24, 
to, to only limit myself to the first century, I think, could also be an error. Like, can it be both and is what I'm saying. The now is, and later. Yeah. Is, and so that's, that's the idea of prophecy. If, the more I've understood prophecy in the Jewish mindset is they thought of prophecy more in pattern than in just like speaking a um, sort of this, this prediction, right? It includes predictive things, but it's pattern. It's, it's like a stone in water. You've probably heard this analogy, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you have like a calm lake and you throw a stone in the water, right? Um, what happens? Ripples. Ripples, right? And as, sorry, as you get to the outer ripple, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Mm. I used to think, um, I used to think prophecy, because it does kind of have this rhyme and rhythm, right? When it comes to the abomination of desolation, for instance, right? There There seems to be several fulfillments of the abomination of desolation. I used to think that, you know, the first time that happened in, you know, when Daniel talked about it in the, you know, in those 400 silent years, the abomination of desolation, that was like the first ripple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this, the 70 AD one was like the second ripple. And then the final one will be like the third ripple kind of thing. The more I think about it, though, is whenever God prophesies through a prophet, it's like the space, this, this might sound a little weird, but try to follow me. Mm-hmm. It's like the space-time continuum is the water. It's the, it's the lake. And God speaks into the future, and he throws a stone to the, to the direct center of where it's going to be fulfilled. Mm. And from there, it, it comes back in waves into our time. Mm. So we begin, to f- we, we begin to feel like partial, like, whoa, that, that felt like that prophecy that was just spoken of. And then the closer you get, it's like, whoa, there it is again. Oh, mm. there it is again. So you see the abomination like of desolation. Right. So you see the abomination of desolations happening several times. This, this wave and then another wave. And actually what's happened is God has prophesied this is going to happen and the, and the ripple comes back into, into the past and goes into the future. That, that's how I see prophecy happening. So when Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, the perfect instance of this is Jesus saying this because he's actually speaking of a past abomination of desolation but talking about a future one at the same time, Right? So, so Matthew 24, um, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. In other words, hey, go back to Daniel and find that passage in the scripture. Mm-hmm. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the, the readers in that day would have understood the abomination and desolation spoken of in Daniel was something that did happen in their history through Antiochus Epiphanes. Mm-hmm. And they would have been like thinking, okay, but why is Jesus saying when you see the abomination spoken of through Daniel the prophet, run the, why is he saying it's going to happen again? Because he's telling us here that, that prophecy happens in patterns and waves and there's there's... Mm. It, it isn't. It, it's only been partially fulfilled in that one, and and so they would have understood when seventy A.D. comes. They would have been thinking about this. Oh gosh, is there somewhat of a? Is there something when you go back to seventy A.D. There wasn't actually uh, is is fulfilled to the T from from Daniel 
chapter 11, the abomination of desolation. But there was this time where armies surrounded Jerusalem, where wars came in, where they destroyed the temple. And they had to have remembered the writings, you know, what Jesus said, to flee. Those who are in Judea, speaking of an actual place, right, a literal place, mm-hmm. flee to the mountains and basically run for your life how dreadful it will be in those days. Um and then it go, but then it goes on to say, Jesus says, "For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never equal, never to be equaled again." So there is where I would say it, it wasn't fulfilled, right? But would it would, would they be would they be thinking, "Oh yeah, this sounds like something Jesus told us about in that day," but then it wasn't fully fulfilled. Where that where now we have the nation Israel, we have everything surrounding Judea, and we have uh, a third temple about to be rebuilt at any moment. Daniel seven says there's going to be, uh, you know, the abomination that causes desolation at the three and a half year mark of the seven year agreement that is made, the final seven, you know, seventieth week of Daniel that is still yet to happen, according to my understanding of, of scripture. So Jesus is speaking to the people in his day, but I believe he's also speaking to the final generation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Cyclical I, prophecy. Yeah, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, that, that understanding is something, I think we do, sorry to cut you off, but like with like type, like typology of like types of Christ that you see, I mean, that's, uh, in the Old Testament, you see highlighted aspects of the Messiah and the patriarchs of the faith. You know, mm-hmm. like we, we did this like game one time where we tried to, f- with a description of a patriarch, whether it w- you had to guess whether it was Christ or not, you know, and like you could describe Abraham in a way where he does sound like Christ because like there were like these, these un- anointed leaders that like was a type and shadow of Christ to come, right? And Hebrews looks back on that, the writer of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that from Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, like all these different, uh, even Jonah, you know, represent, as, as they, they go. Um, and it's like this kind of, like you're talking about like a ripple or like a cycle of, and they highlight different aspects and then you get Christ. Um, and then, you know, the, the church, the Christians are told to be types of Christ from then on, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yep. So I, I it, even when that that theology applied to like the Antichrist, you know, it, it, it we're looking at seventy A.D. could have been then, and th- then it could have been a type of one to come. Um, and so like right now, where I am, like that's where like I, I still am pre mill, um, with that kind of new understanding of like uh, there is a millennium to come, and there a lot of the prophecies could have been fulfilled in the immediate and the far. Um, and that way I don't necessarily, like, I can take, this is, it sounds kind of greedy. It's like, <laughs> uh, but like, I can take the, the best principles from, and hermeneutics from, um, you know, one aspect and apply yeah. it and still kind of hold tightly to what, you know, that, yes. that, uh, that understanding of scripture. So I would only have one question to that, and that just might be from not understanding all the prophecies got completely. Here in case you want. Yeah, I know. I haven't talked much today. <laughs> I'm taking it in. So, um, my question to that would be. Does that only apply to some prophecies? Because there were, whatever, 600-some prophecies about Jesus. Do those get dual prophecies as well, or only the ones speaking about the future? So it's interesting. It's a good question, because if you actually study the prophecies of, you know, Jesus, mm-hmm. many of them were already dual prophecies. So the the Isaiah prophecy, for instance, of Emmanuel, if you look at the prophecy in Isaiah, which is like from the Emmanuel scroll from Isaiah 6 to 11, I believe it is, and it talks about Emmanuel, he will have a son. If you go back and you look at that actual, uh, you know, prophecy itself, 
there was actually a literal kid that was had during that time that he named Emmanuel, right? Mm. So there was a, it was actually like a, a literal fulfillment in his day, but that was also speaking prophetically of the Emmanuel to come. So, so what I'm saying is even the ones that were fulfilled had somewhat of a near and far fulfillment if you actually study them. That's why it's almost like confusing to read them when you go back to Isaiah and you read it and you go, wait, you know, you read this. The, the, even the prophecies of the Antichrist, you read it and you like a lot of these were fulfilled at least in in a partial detail with the guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's like the it's like the the shot the foreshadowing of the Antichrist. So they were fulfilled in the day that they were prophesied. Because you think about it like this too, like a prophet couldn't falsely prophesy. There had to be somewhat of a of a truth to what they yeah, said. They had to be able to test it. But in order for a prophet to speak into the far future as well, so it's like there's this near and this far uh, hmm. fulfillment. So I think I think you could probably make the case that you know when when the prophecy uh, you know if you just go through Matthew for instance and you look at some of the prophecies that are spoken of and this is Matthew was written to a Jewish audience right so they're they're you know they're really going to want to know, okay, where do the Bible prophecies speak of? Most of the prophecies that I, like, you might even be able to, all of them have these dual fulfillments in and of themselves. So you have, you know, like, um, the first one talks about the birth of Jesus, and it talks about uh, this in verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that had a partial fulfillment, not through a virgin birth uh, when it comes to having a divine child, but there was this uh, illustration when you go back to Isaiah and you read the child that he has through this woman and then that prophecy was was given not to say this is the literal fulfillment but there's a partial fulfillment mm -hmm. right here with this child as almost like this uh, object lesson which wouldn't that be interesting to actually have to have a child as an object lesson for for teaching someone you know? yeah <laughs> but anyway yeah. yeah yeah but that's how a lot of these things happen um and then you go on and you you keep reading if, if you just do a study, I mean, I, I could look it up real quick too, but wherever it says this is to be fulfilled, like this this was to fulfilled, you know, like uh, the next one is in chapter 2, verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now what's really interesting about that prophecy is you go back and you find where that prophecy is from, which I, for cross-reference, that's from Hosea 11.1. 1. And you read it in the context of Hosea, it's speaking in the, in, the pro, in the prophetic form, but it's talking about how God had saved Israel, the nation Israel, out of Egypt, and speaking in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, a personal form of Israel as his son and how when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, he saved, he, he brought the son out of mm -hmm. Egypt. The, the Bible writer here takes that prophecy and applies it to Christ because Christ now is the fulfillment of true Israel. He is the true Israelite that is now on earth that is kept, that is going to keep the law. And yet he is now being taken from Egypt, just like 
the Old Testament said, even though the Old Testament was speaking of, of their day when God pulled the nation Israel out of Egypt, he then applies it to Jesus. So just, just that'll make you rethink how they saw prophecy altogether. Yeah. It's not so much prediction as it is pattern, how they, how they were seeing these things. So, and, and so even that study alone will just kind of re- Wire your mind for how to read prophecy. Yeah, same. And and because with um, the young adults group, we're going through the minor prophets right now, and mm-hmm. um, what we're in Hosea. And one of the the things that God's teaching me through this is that f- specifically in three of the prophets, He used like their marital status to help them understand the prophecy that they were given. So in Hosea, like God tells him to go take a wife. Gomer, that's that's not going to love it. It's going to go into prostitution, and that he's going to have to rescue back, in order for Hosea, and I believe that's a literal wife. God tells him to go get, mm-hmm. in order for Hosea to understand the pain that God feels with Israel. And so when when Isaiah when when um, Hosea is given the prophecy, he necessarily would be like, all right, like not to be cr- crass, but like I understand, you know, somebody might love a whore, who cares, you know. But when it's the one that he loves, and God tells him to love him, and then God uses that as an object lesson for his own prophecy, not to be fulfilled, but to at least understand the one that the words that are coming out of his mouth. And like um, Jeremiah was told that to not take a wife, and God says because he wants you to understand what it's to be a bachelor without the one the one he loves doesn't love you back. Mm-hmm. You know, and then um, Ezekiel, um, his wife dies because he was foreshadowing. Okay, is one day Israel is going to perish, and so it's like, like you said, it, it would it would stink to get a firstborn, and 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 like God gives you a child literally as an object lesson, but He used that like the actual object and the the institution of marriage to teach the 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 minor prophets and the major prophets about um, you know a lesson with Israel. So a prophecy actually explained through God delivering and removing um wives which is which is wild and that's also like a it's a type of what you're talking about where immediate fulfillment maybe like of it but more partial or at least an object lesson for the the ultimate prophecy Mm -hmm. so it's even interesting with just in general that's one that's partial and full with just israel and that's not even getting to the christ yet so let me just give you one one more just to chew on where Jesus actually takes that same prophetic uh, understanding and applies it to John the Baptist when he says this is the, it's one of the most confusing things that people ask me all the time was John the Baptist Elijah or wasn't he Elijah like you know is he the spirit of power because there's all these prophecies about mm-hmm. about Elijah that will come and so when they ask him why do this is Mark nine eleven? Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replies, "To be sure, Elijah does come first, and restores all things." So Jesus is saying, "Yes, there is going the the, the true fulfillment of Elijah coming first will happen." But notice he says, "Restores all things." We he the, John the Baptist didn't restore all things, right? He didn't he didn't lead the way to the final restoration. John the Baptist led the way to to Christ. The the future Elijah is still yet to be fulfilled, is what Jesus is saying here. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as is written about him. And he's speaking about John the Baptist. So which is it, Jesus? Did Elijah 
Come in John the Baptist or didn't he? And Elijah's say, Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah will come in the future to restore all things. But I'm telling you, Elijah did come in John the Baptist, and they rejected him and they did as they wished. Mm. So there's a partial fulfillment of the future prophecy of Elijah in John the Baptist, but that's not the full fulfillment. Mm. And, and this is one of the reasons why people believe that one of the two witnesses will is be Elijah, Elijah, because that will be the, the preparation of the second coming of Christ. No, I actually met one of the two witnesses. He went to a church I used to go to. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he believed he was one of the two. Yeah, I think my two sons are, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They spoke fire. Uh, Yeah, the... uh, I don't want to speak poorly about anybody, but he he at my my childhood church before I went to Calvary, there was a man who believed that he was one of the two, and that one day he was just going to be empowered. So he was constantly saving up for his trip to Israel, so that he could <laughs> you go. Don't even need, God will get you there if you're the prophet. You don't. Yeah, need no, he wanted to be able to pay his ticket just in case. Um, he was not, in case you're wondering. Um, he was not. Um, he still lives at home with his, his big birds. Um, literally, he's like three foot parrots. Um, so maybe he is. It hasn't happened yet, though. I'm for sure. But I'm just saying that this is an example of a near and far prophecy that Jesus himself is mm-hmm. citing, right? But John the Baptist fits the near prophecy, but it's not the full prophecy of the Elijah to come. It's it's a prophecy in type and shadow. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? No, yeah. I, the, yeah. I think we all kind it's of agree the, on that, right? I mean, that looking backwards for sure. Looking backwards for sure. Yeah. yeah. You don't think that that's a for sure like cyclical fulfilled prophecy in the future? No, to me, I think. Look, to me, I think. Uh, so, okay, so, um, yeah. So we're looking at all these things, and then we're saying uh, that in the New Testament, I think. I think when you look at them, for me at least, they all coincide with one another, and they all also coincide with the imminence that is just rampant throughout the New Testament. The amount of times it's at hand, Jesus is knocking at the door. Um, these are those last days that Joel spoke of X, Y, and Z. Mm. It all blends in together. I, I think the already and not yet, like I said, that, that's the Raz Prashar principle, was a principle for the Old Testament prophets. And then, uh, like for First uh, Peter ten to twelve, uh, he says, "Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what." Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. The things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that time for clarity, the authority of the apostles to full, which is why I agree that the Jose, every verse, and I would just, I, I agree I disagree a little bit with what you're saying about John the Baptist. I think he says, yeah, that he is Elijah. And I think he says later, those, uh, he's, uh, did you read it? He, he's Elijah. Well, he, he's going to say in another verse somewhere else that he isn't Elijah too. He's going to say that he's not the literal Elijah. Well, he so. says he is the spirit of Elijah, those who have it, or if, you, if you're willing to believe it. So I think he's saying yes. And I think a lot of, again, like uh, back to Paul's principle in Colossians, that like all of the Old Testament things were shadows and types of things to come. So... Yes, John the Baptist, just like Israel, just like Jesus, if you're willing to believe it, is the fulfillment of, of Israel. He is not a land nation. He is a, he was a human, he's God, but he is the fulfillment, just like John the Baptist is the f- fulfillment of Elijah. That's why he dressed like him. That's why he, got, uh, he approached uh, the king like John the Baptist did. There's your indirect presentation. Mm. Before that verse even comes around, we already see everything John the Baptist is doing is just like Elijah. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, the same thing. Elijah puts, you know, puts his cloak on Elisha. And Elisha is, is, is prophetic as a type for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, the sandals, bootstraps, you know, all those things. Um, and I think it takes away... You ha- so it's like I understand the already and not yet, but then the not yet in the New Testament doesn't really make sense when you consider all the imminence. Um, it takes away from a lot of the imminence. And like uh, we brought well, up – sorry, good. No, go ahead. But I, I just want to go back to yeah, this yeah, verse yeah. though because that's what I read. That's what I'm saying. Let's – to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Mm-hmm. He's not saying that John the Baptist has done that. He's saying that that's going to be the full fulfillment of the literal Elijah. And that's why he says, why then is it written the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? In other words, there's there's two comings of me, too. So in other words, there there's well, yeah. going to be, at the second coming of Christ, a future literal Elijah that will actually uh, pave the way in the future. But right now... The Son of Man is going to be rejected, and there's an Elijah in spirit right now preparing hearts because the kingdom is coming in a different way right now. Well, I think that's when we see Elijah and Moses at the Ascension. And they built the tabernacle for him. But they didn't restore all things. Well, that's when they asked the question, is that this time you'll restore the kingdom of Israel? It is after that because they Correct. saw Elijah. And then, right? and then momentarily, they're in the, uh, the Feast of Weeks, so they're in Shavuot at the time, they're in Pentecost at the time, and then Pentecost happens, and that's when I believe, that's when, that's tr- I think at Pentecost is truly when the New Covenant begins. Um, the Old Covenant, where at Mount Sinai, as Hebrews would say, they, they faced it with fear, 3,000 people died. On the New Covenant in Pentecost, 3,000 people come to life through baptism. That's really when the New Covenant comes in, and that's the, be- that's the, rest- that's the beginning of the restoration of the kingdom. But, um... So I think that would be your your your, your like I I see what you're saying. I don't know this necessarily that that's what he right. But again, there, but that's the, that's an allegorical, which which I would I wouldn't disagree that the restoration of the kingdom. So when you so where are you landing right now in your in your eschatology? Are you are you leaning more of like a uh, amillennial viewpoint? Is that what you're mm. telling me? No, neither, uh, really. Um, what box kind of, are you in? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really in a millennial box. Um, I believe in covenant eschatology. That has made it. That has made it. Uh, that has made the Bible make most sense to me. So, like, I would say that Matthew, um, Matthew twenty four, Luke twenty one, Mark, whatever Mark's is, I forget um, if Mark's is even in there. But uh, I would say the Book of Revelation is John's mm-hmm. Olivet Discourse through apocalyptic literature. And to me, it was the, it was the uh, temple destruction. And it was the vindication of the martyrs. Um, like if you go to, uh, I, think a, I think we were there, um, Matthew, well, let me get there. Mark 13, by the way. It's 13? Yeah. It's in 3 Thessalonians. 5th Peter. When he is elastic keys, so where you stretch the truth a little bit. Oh, I thought it was like where you play keys. Oh, no, like Alicia Keys, but elastic is a terrible name, though. What the heck is he talking about? Uh, what are you looking for, me? I can help, huh? Matthew, Jamie's over here 24 3. No, I th- um... where he's talking about, um, well, I guess where he says, upon this generation will come, but he says. 
Um, I think that's a huge uh, motif in the New Testament based off of Old Testament that Israel in uh, uh, throughout Isaiah, Israel will, this is the already and yet to come, Israel has to fill up the measure of their sin. And the filling up of the measure of their sin, if I could find the verse, is... 2434. Right. 2430. He's got a computer like right in front of him. He's flipping through the pages like an animal. Um... Truly, I tell you, this generation no, no, will no, not no, pass no, away no, no, until these one. things have happened. We're you know, um, you're filling up the measure of your sin, oh, Zacharias yeah. to Abel. Um, I think it's oh, here you go, right here. So at the end of 20, this is leading into 24. <laughs> Told me the so, wrong thing. That's the thing. Yeah, I did, I did, sorry. So if you go to Matthew 23, this is the, I think you need to read Matthew 24 starting at Matthew 21, but if you read... Matthew 24, the backdrop is for Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And then, his, then he laments for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a... Hand gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I think that's the backdrop from 24, and it's, it's the filling up, as, as, as Paul would say, as John would say, as, as John says in Revelation, as, uh, you know, as they all say, it's like Israel had to fill up their sin. And the, filling, the, the final fulfillment of the filling up the measure of their sin was this. I am sending you. And this goes back to the this goes back to his parables, the parables of the uh, the tenants, the parables yeah. of the wedding banquet. Mm-hmm. I am I'm having a wedding. I'm going to invite. I'm going to invite you. You're not going to be willing to come, and or the tenants. So somebody like, else is. Yeah, going to. I'm going to send you prophets. Then I'm going to send you my son. And the, the Pharisees realized they were talking about him. And to me, it's like all you see all of this be fulfilled in Acts. If you read Acts from beginning to end, you see how the clash in Acts is always between the apostles and. The, the temple, the, either the temple or the temple corpus. So like the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the synagogues, when Paul, Paul and Peter go out to the, to the synagogues, it's always like they were preaching, but the Jews ca- you know, carried him out to the, and beat him. Or, but the, they always had a clash with the temple. And, and to me, it was because the, I believe the Messianic temple is the unified family of Messianic Jews and, and Christians. That's the Messianic temple. We're living stones being built up as a spiritual temple. Um, so I think we are the Messianic temple, and that was clashing all throughout X with the physical temple that Hebrews would say is temporary and is, is nigh unto passing away. All of Hebrews is talking about the old covenant, is nigh unto passing away, moving to the new covenant. And then um, Revelations, you're saying, is solidifying that in the destruction. Uh, yeah, and then Revelation, I think, is John's apocalyptic literature way of describing Matthew 24 about the, 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 the temple um, and now I, now I fully, this is me fully <laughs> saying this, not understanding certain concepts that I have always just been told. Like, well, what, then what does this mean? Or the, what is, I, I get that there's questions that I'm still working through. But um, I, I, you know, I believe that um, 
it all kind of coincides and with um yeah so yeah. it sounds like you're, you're operating out of a covenant like a covenant theology framework yeah, which yeah. would which would not include a future plan for israel really correct right right which when i read this it actually says it right there that there is still a future plan. It doesn't say he's done with Israel. It says, for I tell you, the last verse, for I blessed tell you, you will not name. see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in fact, that's what Revelation is all about. It's that future day when Israel will say that about their Messiah, which is the final fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week, when Israel itself will anoint the Most High, the one who they will finally say, blessed is he who comes. See, this is right on the heels of them rejecting the Messiah when he mm -hmm. comes yeah. and rides in on the donkey. And so he's not saying, I'm done with you, Israel. He's saying, you're now under judgment from this point on Correct. because mm -hmm. you've rejected the king of Judah. Mm. So 40 years from this point, just like Ezekiel chapter 4 prophesied, will be the day that... The Roman Empire comes in and destroys Jerusalem, and then Israel will head into their second exile, which was prophesied. So, so what you have to do is ask yourself, what about all of the other Old Testament scriptures that speak about Israel and all of the things that never got fulfilled in, in, in the land itself, in the covenants and the land itself? And so we, even when we talk about covenant theology... I think it's really it's really good to to you know to verse yourself in what the different covenants were. Even dispensationalism, like I would, I would like, I'd rather break things into covenants. But dispensationalism, right? It it kind of starts with like from Adam and Eve to the fall. That's mm -hmm. like what they say the first dispensation. But I would call that there's a there's a covenant there. There was a. Um, Adamic, the Adamic, Adamic covenant, covenant yeah. right? And and it was it was. A beautiful thing. It was basically a conditional covenant: don't eat of the tree of the, you know, knowledge of evil, uh, of good and evil. Uh, and if you do, then you will surely die. We're all under the curse of the Adamic covenant right now because of Adam and what he did. All humanity is now under the death penalty because of that, right? Would you guys agree? Right? We're, we we get inherited the death penalty yeah. of Adam because of the fall. Then you move to the next section, and that is after the fall, you have. Uh, basically this uh, covenant of, you know, there there is this, um, this day coming in the future where Satan is going to be judged, he's going to be destroyed. You have from the fall to uh, Noah, and then Noah, there's a Noahic covenant where God promises there's always going to be seasons, I'm never going to flood the earth again. But within that covenant is instituted government. Right, we and and so this is sort of the dispensation. The human government is like human the third government or fourth, right? becomes another dispensation, if you will. But I would say that 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 surrounds the Noahic covenant, right? So you have mm. you have these different covenants: the Eden, the Edenic covenant, the Edemic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and then from there it goes to Abraham from. Uh, from Noah to Abraham, which we would call the Abrahamic covenant, which is different. This is not, I'm not even dealing with the old covenant yet. When, when people talk about old and new covenant, when Hebrews is talking about old and new covenant, Hebrews is talking about the Mosaic covenant. It's not right. talking yeah. about any of these other covenants. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm dealing with these first, you know, four covenants, if you will. You have the Edenic covenant, which was conditional, the Edemic covenant, which is a curse, which will one day be broken through Christ. 
uh, you have, which is unconditional. That that will come when Jesus smashes the head of the serpent. That happens through the cross. Ultimately, the curse will eventually be broken when he comes back at his second coming, right? You also have the, the Noahic covenant, which was unconditional because he promised through the rainbow, I'm never going to flood the earth again. No matter what you do, there's always going to be seasons. Mm. That was an unconditional promise. Then you have the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, which was a covenant of... Uh, blessing the world through all families of the world through his seed, ultimately speaking of Christ, but it also included a promise of the land, which we call the promised land or the holy land. Land and seed. And that comes, the holy land promise comes before the old covenant. And that was promised to Abraham's descendants, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Jacob then becomes named Israel. The nation Israel comes from Jacob, right? Mm. Each of those, each of those children, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same promise of land is promised and repeated. That the holy land will always be. That Israel will never cease to be. Will, will not cease to be a nation. It, even even if it goes into exile, he will continue to bring it back in to a nation. And and Isaiah speaks about a second. Um, exile that he will then draw people together again so you have all these prophecies then you have the mosaic covenant right which is what you call the dispensation of law but i would call it the mosaic covenant which is basically god instituting the law and he then works through that and that's all to prep everybody basically for the messiah we know galatians tells us that's what this is all about right but then when jesus comes on the scene uh, you you now have the new covenant, right? So we would call this the age of grace, right? Uh, and then eventually then you have, which I believe that was six, then you have the seventh one, which would be the, the uh, kingdom dispensation or the covenant of the kingdom where uh, Israel and uh, Israel now uh, awakens once again and ushers in the kingdom. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Revelation 1 pretty much opens up with this by saying this is what they will see. Every eye will see him, and they will see the the one whom they have pierced, if you will. It's like a quote uh, about when Israel is waking up during this last seven-year period of Revelation uh, that Revelation deals with. So anyway, all, all that to say... Um, I forget why we were, we, were, we were getting into this covenant, but just to say, like, yeah. uh, covenant theology wouldn't necessarily... So, so all, of the, all of the covenants, except for the Edenic covenant, which was like a, a conditional covenant, and the Mosaic covenant, all of the other ones were unconditional. In other words, there's no stopping it. Like whatever God promised, it's going to happen. You know, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional, though. It's like mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't obey the Correct. rules, mm-hmm. this is yeah. this is the punishment, and this is what's going to happen. So the nation of Israel was entered into the Mosaic Covenant, but simultaneously they have the Abrahamic Covenant that was promised to them as well. Whether or not they break it or not, that land was promised through mm-hmm. Abraham to their descendants through. Not just Abraham and all nations of the world, but through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why Romans 11 says, on account of the patriarchs, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are beloved, even though they're enemies of the gospel. And there's coming a day where Israel will once again uh, open their eyes. They right now have a partial 
hardening, partial hardening. It's a hardening in part because it's not total and it's not complete. There is going to come a day where they do receive the Messiah. And when that does happen, then the whole world will be renewed. That's mm. how Romans 9 through 11 reads. Um, so to say that there's nothing future for Israel is completely... I don't know how you can read the Bible. In fact, when you go when you go to Acts, we already read Acts 1. Um, we, we quoted that earlier. Well, while you go there real quick, I, just, I don't want to sidestep too much, um, mm-hmm. but one thing I, I got out of... So we went through a period at, at Calvary where... And we still have the dispositional background for, for as a, like a foundation. But like one thing that I, so I, again, I sound like I'm greedy. It's kind of, um, I like to pick the parts of the like dispensationals and what I like about it is it does help me, like you just said, break down the Bible into seven kind of bite-sized chunks. And I think for someone new to the Bible, just disregarding all the other aspects of dispensationalism other than just the categorical breakdown here. I think it does help understand a little bit, um, regardless of the end times eschatological eschatological view of like someone who's new to the Bible, just explaining God related to his people in different ways throughout history. That's that's an important like hermeneutic, you know, like the way that God spoke to, to Moses and the way that God relates to us today is different. And like that, that's a that's a really foundational truth though that like a lot of new believers need to hear, and it's it's what I think this does is a, it at least provides a framework for the Old Testament regardless of where you think it's going in the New, for new believers to be able to understand a little bit. So okay, so why why do we need wisdom literature? Like because it's it's the application of the law, you know, and and all of that is is um, I think it it, it does kind of provide a, a nice framework. Um, and you can kind of take that as a tool in the tool belt and use that for grafting in new believers onto the vine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, and, and, and I think it's a tool. Like, I think yeah. that's what you're saying, but, mm-hmm. to, but I, I wouldn't label myself a dispensationalist. Like I could look at that and say, yeah, I mean, he, he works through the problem I have with dispensationalism here, here, here it is, mm-hmm. is that I don't believe that that there's not different covenants working simultaneously at the same time. Like right now we are in the, we are in the curse, you know, we're in the edemic covenant of, of, you know, uh, or, or the Edenic covenant curse right now still, right. If you, if you will, like there's still death, we're still dealing with disease and the toil, the sweat of our brow, Mm. uh, all of those things that, that covenant is simultaneously paralleled with, uh, you know, for instance, the the new covenant that we're in right now, like we're still we're still dealing with that. It'll eventually be crushed in Christ, f- you know, physically and everything. But but what I, the reason I was pointing that out is to say Israel was unique in the sense of they were under the Mosaic covenant, but they were also prior to the Mosaic covenant in the Abrahamic covenant, mm-hmm. which was a covenant promise of land specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Jacob, again, is the, is the founder of Israel. And it's as a nation, there's too many prophecies, the more I study the Old Testament, that are speaking about the fact that Israel... I mean, there's a, there's a prophecy that says God promises that if, if Israel ceases from being a nation for all eternity, he's not, not including the exiles, but he's, he's saying then I will, in order for me to do that, I will have to remove the sun, moon, stars. So 
So you basically have a better chance of destroying Israel by destroying the sun, moon, and stars than destroying Israel, right? Sorry, just a quick note on that one. Does that not relate to Genesis and Joseph talking the relation of the sun, moon, and stars as actually being the nation of Israel, like a parallelism there? I'm just uh, curious, just because I, we just went over Joseph and Calvary. And yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing that. the verse. If you okay. read the verse that I'm quoting from, which mm-hmm. I believe is in Jeremiah, it, it actually says, like, all of the constellations. It, it, it's not just, oh, okay. like, the 12 stars mm-hmm. and, the, and the sun. Moon. But, I, gotcha, but I, do, gotcha. I do agree with that, too, you know, that there is that, that thing. But, but what I was going to say is if you go to Acts... I believe that even the New Testament writers understood that when Jesus even cursed Jerusalem and Israel, he wasn't saying, I'm done with you, Israel, for good. There's coming. They understood that that he would restore the kingdom to Israel, and that's actually what they ask him. And I think it's easy to miss this in Acts 1 where it says, Uh, In verse 6, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel, it says, like the nation, Israel. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set up by his own authority. In other words, he's not saying, nope, I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's saying there is coming a day when I will restore the kingdom to literal Israel. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. So right now the mandate is to go spread the gospel to the world. So right now my focus is going to be on the Gentile nations starting in Israel, but it's going to go worldwide. And then it says after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And the angels actually answered this question. They were looking up intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken away, has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And I believe that that is the answer to when he will restore the kingdom to Israel is at his second coming uh, when he puts his feet down at the Mount of Olives. And actually, if you read the book of Revelation, the whole book is like this, this worldwide uh funneling of God bringing everybody to the place called Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon which happens in the Holy Land at the place Armageddon. of Israel. So Israel is a major player in Bible prophecy. Uh it's not going anywhere. And uh y- you know like there's no – and I and, and I, I appreciate you, like, mm, yeah. wrestling through all these things. I'm just saying, like, there's no way I can even have a framework of mind that wouldn't include a future literal Israel mm-hmm. that God has a plan for the more I study the Scripture. I, I just – I think you – I think you, you, you know, the more that you study, the more you're going to see, like, it can't mean the church. It can't be allegorized into meaning – uh, the Gentile Church. So I, mean, I would I would be interested to hear like your thought process in that too, just how you're wrestling through some. No, of yeah, stuff. You, yeah, correct. I 100% do not believe in replacement theology, um, and I hate when that is one of the boxes that gets put. I believe mm-hmm. in fulfillment theology. So all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, mm-hmm. and I think that's exactly what you see. You know, we uh, you hear all the prophets talk about. Um, 
there's going to remain, you're already not yet, there's going to be a righteous remnant mm-hmm. that remains. And I think that righteous remnant is like you get in Romans 9 to 11, that olive tree of, of biological Israel and, uh, and what you would call spiritual. spiritual. But, but yeah, but they, they come together as the true Israel. So in Romans 9, uh, you see, uh, because I feel like this was already getting, uh, I'm just going to go to Romans 9 just and then to, to Galatians 4. But um, I think this kind of what you're talking about was already getting questioned. Like, oh, well, then is God just done with Israel then? Because there must have been, if you're just inferring, there must have been some sort of conversation happening. And Paul goes, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descendants, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And then if you flip that over to Galatians 4, you get Hagar and Sarah. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, the new Jerusalem in Revelation, is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren, I'm going to have to keep going. Um, But then he says, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. Um, The son of boarding, the son born according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. So I think that is, that coincides with everything. Jesus talking on Matthew 20, like Israel will, ethnic Israel, that was always supposed to be temporary and point things to come, was, like you said, like you said, uh, that's why they quote, that's what the New Testament writers are doing. They're saying that Jesus, Israel was never going to be able to do it. The Mosaic law was never going to be able to do it. But Jesus is the true Israel he fulfilled that. Now, he is becoming the messianic temple. He does that constantly throughout the Gospels. And we are being built up with him being the chief cornerstone, who the builders rejected. So it's all coming like, just like the slave child rejected uh, Sarah's daughter. And it's all connected. Then when you get to Revelation, John loves contrasts. So when you get to, you, you see the harlot. The harlot mm-hmm. is, as he says in, I think, Revelation 11. Um... Let me, can I just interject on that Galatians, um, Galatians 4? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that that's Paul's point there, is to, to deal with national Israel. He's using that as an allegorical explanation of the picture of the flesh and the spirit that battles. He's, he's basically saying, much like, you know, your walk with Jesus, like the context of Galatians has nothing to do with the context of Romans. So... You, you can't take Galatians four and use it as a as a coincide of Romans nine through eleven because the point of Galatians is these false teachers were coming in saying it's by the law that you're saved. If you really want to be a true Christian, it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus Correct. plus mm-hmm. the law. And so Paul is interjecting and saying, if you look at the relationship between Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. That's a good picture of the flesh and the spirit because 
you know, your relationship with Jesus and your right standing before God has nothing to do with you earning it. Correct. Mm-hmm. It, it has everything to do with a promise being fulfilled. And so that's the only point that he's making there to say, just like Abraham tried to make a promise happen by sleeping with Hagar and producing a son by the name of Ishmael, mm-hmm. that's what you're doing when you're trying to add to the work of Christ mm-hmm. to 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 make yourself more saved. You're actually just producing the flesh, and all that's going to do is butt heads with your with your new nature, that, which 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 is what God wants to produce in you by no ability of your own. Like Abraham and Sarah had no ability on their own to produce uh, Isaac, right? Because they were she was ninety, he was a hundred. It was impossible. It had to be a work of God because He promised, and and so that's the point of Galatians. It has nothing to yeah. do with national Israel. So I, I would just say, like, I don't, I don't accept well, Galatians as a proof text to, to what you're arguing. Uh, I see what you're saying, but then when he goes into because before Galatians four, he talks about there's no neither Jew nor and yeah, that is the backdrop, the circumcision. But he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. Um, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Because before that, he talks about the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds. So the promises were not made to his descendants meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person who is Jesus. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the law was added because of transgression, but, right, but that, the promise but, is to his seed. But the promise he's talking about there is the Abrahamic covenant. Correct. The law was added is talking about the Mosaic covenant. So that's Correct. what you have to keep in distinction. He's talking about he's talking about two covenants simultaneously there. But he says our seed is there's no longer Jew and Gentile. So that means the promise well, I know, if you're talking but, to land but, promises is but, also now to the Gentiles as well. Here's the here's the issue. What people quote that verse and they say, you know, there's no longer Jew Gentile, slave, free, female, or male. And then they'll say, so there is no distinction between, there's no distinction to be made between the nation Israel and the Gentiles anymore. And I think that that's a jump. Because if you're to use that verse in that same mind, in that same uh, logic, then you would say there's no distinction between male and female anymore. We We wouldn't say there's no such thing as men and women anymore. We wouldn't say there's no such thing as rich and poor anymore. What we're saying, what what he's saying, the point of what he's saying there is not that men should go to female bathrooms now because we're all the right, same. Right, right, Christ. right, right, right. The Wait same a second. As, I was <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm saying there's a lot of people that believe that. Yeah. He's yep. just saying we're all at equal ground at the foot of the cross. In Christ, everything's been fulfilled because the promise was ultimately down the corridor of its final fulfillment. It was Jesus. Mm. So anybody that finds that final fulfillment now gets to experience the full blessing of the promise of Abraham. But what he's not saying by that same token is that the distinction of Israel and all the promises that were given to Israel through the Abrahamic covenant are no longer necessary. Because again, he's dealing with the Mosaic law in that context, not the Abrahamic covenant. So I don't believe that, you know, I don't believe that when it comes to the nation Israel, or like the land of Israel, I don't believe I could just go to Israel right now and just claim it as my own. Like, like I can't go to an Old Testament Joshua thing and just go in there with a sword and start killing people. And like, this is this is this has been promised to me. It wasn't promised to me as a Gentile. That was promised to ethnic Israel. Again, that that's where I land with it. Um, so I just don't. I don't. I don't think. 
I don't think that you can make the distinction by those verses in Galatians because Galatians in, con- in context is dealing with law and grace. That's the main context where Re- Romans is dealing with, it certainly is dealing with law and grace, but there was a divide in the Roman church with Jew and Gentile, well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. where you know there was basically this church split, and the Jews were were basically on one side, and they were they were still obeying the Old Testament law, and the, and they were saying you know you know and 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 majority of the church at this point in Rome was Gentile, and so there was almost this anti-Semitism creeping into the early church, and Paul I believe is even addressing that to say hey mm-hmm. we still should be loving them even though they're enemies of the gospel on account of the patriarchs. There should be no ounce of anti-Semitism. You still need to. We they're still beloved because of the patriarchs, which is which is you know in chapter eleven. I guess my question then would be because what do you, what do you think he means when he says like not all Israel are Israel? He's saying there's two Israels. It would be the same th- way of saying not all Christians are Christians. Okay. You know, right. like you can claim to be a Christian. It's the same in, in John chapter eight where he's where you know Jesus is talking to them and he's saying like you guys are. Are slaves and they're like we never been slaves to anybody. We're Abraham's children and 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 he's like, uh, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the things that Abraham did. And he's he's speaking spir- in spiritual terms to say you can claim to be something, and not be, but that doesn't mean that they aren't, uh, you know, they're not ethnically, uh, you know, Jewish, if you will. Right? He's right. not saying you're not ethnic. Descendants. He's mm-hmm. just saying, spiritually speaking, descendants-wise of the covenant promise, and, th- and that's what the the tracing of of Romans is is following. It's it's following the promise that God is not bound. Uh, you know, like we can't claim like my grandfather was a Christian, so therefore I'm a Christian. That's the point of him saying that to the Jews that, that were saying. You know, we can just be completely anti-Jesus mm-hmm. and still be saved. And Jesus is like, no, you can't, because Abraham would have received me and he would have loved me and you guys aren't. So that mm. that's kind of the point that he's making there. I guess for the Galatians one, I guess I disagree based on the, after that, when he says, um, like Isaac, our children of promise at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share an inheritance with the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So I, I think he is talking about who was actually Abraham's seed. And this is in light of the Jews persecuting the current, the, the, the Gentiles now being welcomed in. Now, in the context, it's flesh and spirit. If you read chapter 5, he, he goes on, and that's where the fruit of the spirit, and he, he talks about... When you're, when you're trying to you know, produce the promise of God by your own effort, which that's what Abraham did with Hagar. Hey, let's mm-hmm. sleep with Hagar to produce the promise of God by our own effort. And then, you know, that's you operating out of the flesh by trying to earn salvation. And that's why he says the fruit of the, you know, basically the works of the flesh are this. It gives a whole list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And that's why he says if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh because the flesh and the Spirit are contrary. He's He's unraveling the same thing he just said in chapter 4 by using that as an analogy to say, if you try to produce this salvation by your own efforts, it will always end up producing the fruit of the flesh in your life. You need to just rest in the finished work of Jesus 
and this promise will be will be had. It's impossible for you to do it. You just rest in his promise and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, mm. self-control is what is produced by that. So I just think the context is everything in Galatians there. So, but but I'm still tracking with you. I'm just saying I yeah. wouldn't use Galatians as a proof text of what you're saying. Okay. So, uh, so I mean, not, not that I want to put it, it just because we kind of hit to the end of the the road there. I think for like that that specific you know verse and context and everything without doing like a whole deep dive on Galatians. Um, but like what I, just we're two hours and five minutes in, right? And and um, uh, this is probably one of the first examples I've I've had in a long time of people just like talking about the Bible and like politely disagreeing. And I, I don't see this like very. I don't see that very often, so I commend you guys. And well, I'll, oh, I'll I love it. I I'll sit here much. for another five minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so the, the mics yeah. can turn yeah. off. We can still yeah. talk. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mean, I think this kind of discourse is lost in the, in the church today. Um, and I, I also think that, like, just just me being probably, um, if the three of us are sitting down, I'm not sure. Cole and I haven't talked too much about it, but like, I probably the least studied in this area than than the three of you, and I'm learning. You know, like from both you guys just talking, and, and I, I think like the highest, Jordan Peterson talks about like the highest level of intelligence and learning happens during these conversations. Mm-hmm. Like during discourse, the absolute highest level of intelligence is displayed and the, the most amount of refining is, is, is um, achieved. And I actually, I think that's true, regardless of like religion, I mean, you know, talking about the Bible or otherwise. So if we want to be like sharp enough as believers, like we need to integrate that into our our. When normally in, and I think Joe, you shared this about, I forget where you were, but it might've been Israel when there's like, there's oh, yeah. like places mm-hmm. where you can go and just talk. Like what, yeah, what you, have you been, you've been to Israel, right? No, yeah. We're supposed oh, no? to, we're oh. supposed to go in you got uh, me April, the, but we'll see. If, you got uh, me with the uh, Megiddo. Cause you knew that. And like a lot, not a lot of like Armageddon, Har Megiddo. And I like people know that unless you've been to the, the we get it. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. There. No, I'm just saying, but like that's, I was like, oh, he's definitely been, he's definitely been um, <laughs> No, I wish. Uh, but yeah, they had these like, they had, just quickly explain it. They had these like, uh, I don't know, not even cafes, but like you almost walk in, like you're going to a baseball dugout, you walk down and then there's just coffee and like table, like circle standing tables. And it's just meant that like you constantly go in and out and just, uh, you pick up wherever, if there's, Two Jews or rabbis talking. You, like the other one's supposed to just come in and pick up where they left off. Now you're just in a debate. Maybe not a debate. Maybe it's an opinion. But you're just talking about the word, and then you just leave. So if you got 30 minutes on a lunch break, you just go in and you get you start talking about scripture, and then you you leave. And it sharpens you, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. That's the right. point. And, right, and right, what right. it does is is it it chips away. It's I don't want to say this like crassly, but stupidity. Like if, if I were to sit down with you right now and be like, Pastor Jeff, I think women have less value than men. And this is where I think that, and I just start talking to you, that's going to fall apart really quickly, mm. right? Because if, if I were to have that, like a, a verse in First Corinthians that I cite for that about jewelry, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then we start talking, if you start putting it in context, like you're saying, or you're saying, mm. it's going to start to fall apart and I can't yeah. hold tightly to things that are clearly not true. You know, and if I if I came to you with something about race mm. that I, that was, you know, if I, like, like you said, that Galatians verse is, is often quoted by... Um, ideologies today right, 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 right. Um, about race, gender, ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, and and Vody Balkum does a nice job in his expository apologetics book of, of like breaking those down. Yeah. And what he does is he just puts it in context. But like, if you're if you're too afraid to talk about it, it's because it, you know it won't hold up to the test, you know. And if and if you're holding on to something really tightly and you're not putting it to the test, I'm not sure if truth. I'm not sure that truth is your primary goal. Right. You know. That's a good point. That's yeah. a solid. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, like I I should be able to admit when I'm wrong when I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it, if the truth surfaces, and, yeah. and it's not easy. Sometimes it's like you got to swallow your pride, but that's the only yeah. way to learn. Right? That's yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so putting these things to the test, though, is just like it's uncomfortable. Like I, I, I've just from so the podcast started because we'd argue about things in the past, like in politely. Yeah. You know, we, I yeah, remember yeah. we had like uh, during COVID, um, ecclesiology became a big topic, mm-hmm. right? Oh, like right, a big right, right, study. Right, yeah. Like, what is the purpose of the church? Um, like, are, do we have to meet? Like just those those kind of questions came up for the first time because it was always a privilege where you could, and there wasn't a reason to have to have a strong ecclesiology. Um, it was like, you know, it's what you do on Sundays, but then when it's difficult to meet and there's barriers in the way and you have questions about is fellowship required, then like we, I remember we were on a Zoom call doing our young adults group during the first like month, like kind of arguing and, and about you know the role of of Bible study and. Um, like, can, it, I don't know. Like, if, if you're not caught, I remember that one of the arguments we had, uh, and it was specifically with your sister and Joe on, on the Zoom call, was like, um, maybe it was Google Meet, I don't know. But it was, it was basically like, can, um, can you be a Christian and not cause wake? If that, does that make sense? So like, can, can you be a, a Christian principal, a Christian nurse? And if you're not causing problems with your faith around you, is that like, is that, is that okay? Or are you, because it doesn't look anything like the apostles and disciples. And it was like, there's almost like radical element of like, unless you're causing a disruption in like your everyday life. And I remember that being like a, a point of contention where we were arguing back and forth and, and then the role of the church and, and like, so the idea of like, should church be meeting? Um, it was like, well, it's going to make a lot of people upset because it's going to look like a, like a, 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 a I don't know, a, a microcosm of disruption. He goes, we should meet because it's going to make the community upset. And that's what the disciples would do. You know, and like, mm-hmm. it was like these ideas of, of wrestling through ecclesiology. I remember like being sharpened and like li- literally going back and forth and hearing people talk. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's not just eschatology. It's, it's all aspects of mm-hmm. faith, you know? And, and, uh, I, I think that these just happen to be s- some of the murkiest waters. So it's, it's. Yeah. That's why we like lean on them, but these conversations can literally happen about anything. Um, yeah, and, and but I think specifically with eschatology, I think it is important because then it it does have an effect on a lot of things, you know. And um, I think the worst, yeah, this is, this is just a joke, but I think the worst of all eschatology is the, is the uh, panmillennialist. You've heard the joke, the panmillennialist, where it's like, oh, they're just all pan, pan out. out yeah. It's like. All right. I mean, I get it. that's just AKA I'm lazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, greedy like me. Yeah, but um, yeah, it, it does change. You know how you view things, or even if you just become a more nuanced thinker or more humble thinker, like you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm not, mm. like, um, this is just what I think it's saying right now, and you know, I, I, I can well, change. And I think what you started off at the beginning, like people are, th- are mudslinging about Israel right now, and I think that's because they're not talking. Like it's oh yeah, that's it's everything easy. In the world it's now. easy to be humbled. <laughs> When you're sitting at a table talking to people yeah. and they make mm-hmm. they bring up a point that you don't have an answer to. Like just one thing and just I noticed about tonight was that like there were a couple of things where like Joe said something or Pastor Jess said something and you necessarily didn't refute it. It was just like, let's move on to the next point. Like that was a good point. Mm-hmm. Next point. And like like you said, I like that, but this part and that's the part that's like different about normal yeah, discourse. Well, and that, and I think that that's the thing. It's like if we can – if I can follow your logic, mm. then then I will. I just want to I just want to help sharpen you, and I want you to sharpen me. If if what I'm saying doesn't really doesn't really add weight to my argument, then I shouldn't. I probably should not use it. But like, 
I think there's a way to be able to express a, a certain thought pattern, but I just want to make sure that I have the right, mm. the right context and everything. And, 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 uh, and that's, that's just, that there's no way that's going to happen unless you're dialoguing and, and right. having yeah. it. But, but I mean, I don't know what else you guys would want to, would want to talk about. I, I mean, there's, there's definitely some like major shifts that I've had when it comes to, you know, landing in a, a pre-tribulational place and all that. And I could talk about that, but I don't know what, what you guys are thinking for tonight. I don't yeah. know how, I don't know how many hours it is before listeners just zone out. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Dude. I could listen to the four hour podcast. Yeah, if it's interesting. It. Galatians context. But, <laughs> yeah. 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 but like, I don't know what, if with the, um, but I'm, it's up to you guys. Yeah. I mean, there's always part one and two, yeah, you know, always chop it up. Um, as we go, just at yeah, one point, I, we just need like 10 second silence. Yeah. He's more, uh, has to work tomorrow. He, yeah. Oh, uh, well, no, I mean, I was going to say he's harder to, as a pastor, he's harder to get than we are. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. come every Monday. So yeah. I'm here to whatever you need. So, Another in the fire. There was three. Like Meshach and Abednego. You're not Jesus, but I like the <laughs> idea. There's three in the fire. Whatever you want to join, just save us. <laughs> nice. Uh, I really appreciate you guys, and really, um, I really love having these discussions. Mm. And like I said, I went through, and I'm still going through. Like I, I always, you know, the, I always want to recognize my own blind spots, my own biases. And I don't want to necessarily just hold on to something because I'm trying to just win an argument. I, that's not mm. what I'm trying to do. Right, right. I want, I want, I want. I, I think that's what everybody at this table wants is the truth, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so if we're all seeking that, then it's a win at the yeah. end of the yeah, day. Yeah, I think right. that's where respect comes from. Like I know there's no malintent from any. It's no everyone's mm. just trying to figure it out, you know. And that's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, I, uh, that's a that's a huge thing when you like trust the other person. Like I, you know, you give the benefit of the doubt to the other person. Yeah, I'm just trying to hear you out. Yeah, I don't think you have any. An agenda. Right. Um, I do have a, a question, not even, I guess it's eschatology, but not really. Um, do you think because this is such a um, detailed, nuanced thing, um, I mean, and, and it just comes with like years and years and years of study, um, do you think it should necessarily be in a statement of faith? Just because, like, would it, so what would that mean if someone switched, like, what if, some, if someone has like a, a switch? It's like, it's like, well, now what? Like, now, now do you, like, or do you think that should be, I don't know. I, you're a pastor, so I can't even really even answer that. So, I think every church has to decide that. I think that that's a good question and a, and a thing. Like there are some churches that decide to not make eschatology a part of their statement of faith mm. um, because it's so passionate to me, and because I have wrestled through it and really, right. really do feel as though it is important. Uh, I felt as though with our church, I just had it on my heart that I, I did feel as though this was a, this was a, at least a. I don't want to say a flag. This isn't a thing where, like, if someone if someone has a different view, they can't come to our church. But when it comes to like having a platform at our church, mm-hmm. that's where the that's sort of where the right. uh, where the you know the line gets drawn. Basically, because what I want to do is be able to teach the Bible uh, eventually through you know from cover to cover. Yeah. That, that's my goal is to what teach per- the whole. What counseling. percentage are you right now? I don't know, maybe six percent. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know. If you, you know, know how, many, like, how many books have you been through? I, I mean, we've probably it's been. He just got through, like you know, maybe a dozen Obadiah, so far. You know, so mm. it's it'll be a while. Yeah, but um, That's awesome. but yeah, I mean, I I do think also for unity, you know, 
there, if if you don't have necessarily a standard with with something with, with the day and age, like there, unfortunately, there's so many different denominations. You can call yourself non-denominational and just say, "Hey, we we believe whatever," but like there's a there's a check in my heart if someone was to start teaching on uh, an allegorical view of scripture through everything, I would have a problem with that. Mm. Like I wouldn't be okay, like in my conscience, because mm. I just don't feel that in my heart. So you know what I mean. So there, right, right, there right. has to be something somewhere. But I get. But I, but I do think there's some churches that maybe won't let that become a major issue. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how you can you can teach the whole counsel of God unless you have a handle, at least somewhat of a framework and a handle on those things. So I think right, right. I think it's it's fair to just say, hey, here's our here's our framework, just mm-hmm. so you know what you're getting into. Come into our church, uh, and. And I, I, you know, I'd be willing to to dialogue and mm-hmm. talk about these things. But like, for instance, like we're we're gonna unapologetically at our church, gonna be praying for Israel. We're going mm-hmm. to be, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be from the front, and and hopefully everybody in our church is going to be at least those who are who are who are somewhat spokesmen of our church are going to be. I don't want to say everything pro Israel because like Israel has its own issues, just like any other country. It's like. I, just to say I'm pro-American, like it doesn't mean I agree with everything America's doing, but mm. I do love America as a country. Yeah. Like I love our country mm. as messed up and jacked up as it is. I do believe that we should love Israel as messed up and jacked up as it may be because of the patriarchs. So so that's just the mindset we're going to have where if some people would come in and say, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, praying or believing that God has a plan for Israel, I would just disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's just yeah. some things I feel like when it comes to the trajectory of what God's put on my heart to be able to to keep unity around uh, gospel centered Bible teaching, there there does some ha- somewhat have to be a framework, but mm-hmm. it it kind of goes church to church, pastor to pastor, or where where they decide those lines are, you mm-hmm. know. And and at the end of the day, I stand before God for mm-hmm. for the church that He's uh, entrusted me with, and same with every other pastor. So yeah, you know. well, yeah, well, I. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate that that, that sentiment, that that nuanced thinking. Um, yeah, I mean, and it also matters for I, the the person coming to the church. Like, I, I could, I, I really do believe this. Like, I, I could go to a church that, like, I I don't practice the gift of tongues, and I haven't, right? So that doesn't shape my theology. I just haven't. I I. I'm in my study of the scriptures. I'm there. I I land on. I'm probably not gonna like with okay, so that's just where I am with the scripture. Um, but um, I could go to a church that they do as long as it's under the biblical confines of practicing tongues by Paul, you know, like interpreter, you know, and like so. If I find out someone practices tongues in private or like you go to an AG church where I'm out of my comfort zone and I have an interpretation of scripture where I that's not for me, um, it I could subscribe to the gospel that they're that they're preaching through if they're going through the word of god and just have a disagreement with how they are you know so i think as a as a someone attending a church i could have disagree with the leadership on something as long as i see the fruit of the spirit in them in every other area that was like a big big thing you said like if you could if they're serving um in the ministry and leading people to christ and you know spreading the kingdom then there is no reason to draw lines Right, like as long as there's fruit of the spirit yeah. from them, that's that's the measure, the test of faith. You know, yeah. if if I'm doing something that's holding me back from serving the kingdom, mm-hmm. 
then that's the stumbling block and that's sin. Yeah. And 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 that's a and so like if I if I ended up like going to another church, maybe my family moved to another church yeah. and the only good church in town was like a reformed church mm-hmm. and they were calvinists and they were whatever but they were preaching the gospel for the most part. I'm I wouldn't consider myself calvinist. I wouldn't consider myself arminianist either. So I don't like the boxes, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying like I would know though going to that church yeah. that this is the framework they're operating mm-hmm. in. So I'm not going to go in every conversation and start undermining, you know, this whole calvinism thing. Like right, right, I understand right, yeah. going to that church like mm-hmm. okay, I'm just going to I'm this is this is what they're they're teaching but but I'm going to be the best light I can be and further the gospel here yeah. because this is still a good church in town. And yeah, there might mm-hmm. be, you know, mm-hmm. some things that I disagree with, but I'm not going to cause more dissension than, than be a, be a solution in the thing. So that, that's all I would say. Like, I, I, I think we have to give different pastors and churches that understanding of like, there is a reason that they, that they have this statement of faith. It's just, just respect it. If you, if you go to that church, mm-hmm. respect mm-hmm. it, try not to undermine it. But if you disagree, it's it's not necessarily wrong. Just don't make it like this side conversation about you know what they believe about this mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. really what they should you know that be, that's where it becomes a problem. Like Discord, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, like yeah. It, 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 it just at that point you could say yeah I don't really agree with that, but I love I love this church and and so I might have a different view. Like I know people in our own church at Wellspring that have a different viewpoint, and they we're serving side by side. They mm-hmm. love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we are good friends, right? Yeah. So it's, it, but we're not sitting there undermining each other. I might poke fun and say, I'll, I'm going to prove to you that I'm right when we, when mm-hmm. we get there first and I find I'm <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. But I'm just saying, like, it's in good fun, it's in good love, mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. I just think that we have to make sure love is the, is the number mm-hmm. one yep. thing with brothers. And then just a respect when it comes to who at the at the end of the day is going to stand before God for the congregation like there is there's there needs to be somewhat of a weight of respect there mm-hmm. for the pastor and for the yeah. one leading yep. the church and just to not add dissension and mm-hmm. discord so yeah well, um, I agree so Amen. and uh but but man like study the scriptures be Bereans mm-hmm. like don't just believe what I say because I say it and mm-hmm. and everything else but like be willing to have these hard conversations too, because that's what that's what challenges us, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love it. I love. I mean, the Book of Revelation is one of those books that I never get bored of. I've been studying it for years, and it it's, it makes more clear sense to me now than ever mm-hmm. in a premillennial framework. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. Yeah, and and, I, and also, I, yeah, you do need to learn these other perspectives just so that you can, at the very least, understand your own. Um, but like, it's nothing wrong with having some comfort food. Like, you know, regardless of all the people that I'm going to read, like MacArthur's always going to be comfort food for me. You know, like because I, I grew up in a CMA, and and that was like when I go back and I read it, like there's there's nothing wrong with like, um, being in your comfort zone for a little bit too. You know, and then you know going out and and learning more, and then and then coming back. I, um, I if if that's where God leads, but I I, I think everybody kind of knows what that means when you say comfort food. Like you have something that you just know and you can rely on and like, or not rely on, but it just makes you feel like you're at home. Cause maybe when you first got saved, that was the kind of denomination you were in or whatever. Um, none of those things are, should be full of shame or anything like that either. Like you, you can enjoy comfort once in a while too, when you read mm-hmm. the Bible, it doesn't all have to be this, like, I don't know, jumping over a line every time you read. It's like, you can just read what you have come to know to be true. Yeah. And, you know, um, but we are two hours and 30 minutes in and I see everybody's sleepy eyes starting to come in a little bit. Um, 941, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Um, so 
Pastor Jeff, thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. Thanks um, for having me. It's, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll try to increase the ratio. It's like 49 to 1 right now for our episodes. <laughs> um, and I think it decreased like 63 to 1. Or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's just uh, let's yeah. um, pray. And uh, once again, thank you, because I know you got a little bit of drive coming, and um, I appreciate you. And everybody yeah. listening, never mind. This won't be out by then. Never mind. What? <laughs> I was going to say make your way out Friday night to Wellspring. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. no, all good. Uh, <laughs> Wellspring Church located in, is it Maze Landing? Maze Landing. Maze yeah. Landing, okay. Yeah. Are you playing Are you playing Friday night? Uh, actually, I think I'm, I got the night off uh, okay. from playing. I'll be there, but we have the worship team. Uh, everybody else is handling the Friday night. Mm. So, yeah. nice. well, you know what? Just real quick observation. Like when I was on Sunday, well, we were like praying, um, like before, the, for the, before uh, we went up for worship. And like, the, I just had this prayer in my heart and I said it and it felt weird saying, but like everybody always prays on Sunday mornings for their own congregation and the people walking in their building. And I was just like, God, why? There's so many people walking through church doors yeah. in Hamilton mm. yeah. in our county. All over. Like, God, yeah. why are we only praying for their soft hearts? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, there's so many people this morning that are walking through a church's door. Yeah. And like, I, I, that should be like once in a while. We're not allowed to. Yeah. Or persecuted places where they're not allowed to. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But just in general, like the prayer for like on a Sunday morning, yeah. God, there's a lot of pastors experiencing a lot of yeah. pressure this morning yeah. whose wives just got mad at them, yeah. whose kid is rebelling, you know, and like they're they're weighted down. Um and this morning we're praying for one. Yeah. You know, it's like the church is not just this building we yeah. go to, it's everywhere, yeah. man. And that, that's that's a good reminder. That bird's mm-hmm. eye prayer you mm-hmm. don't get a lot of you know, very often. Um All right, Joe, you wanna price out? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Father, thank you for this time, God. Uh, a lot of things were said tonight, Lord, and I pray that uh, nobody misrepresented you, God. Um, I pray that the underlying thing here, God, that unites all of us is your son and the love uh, for our brothers, God. And I pray that, um, Lord, uh, as listeners uh, hear this, God, that they would understand that uh, what it means to be a Berean, what it means to uh, not be scared to search your word, God, and, and to... Um, that we don't have to be uh, uniform, God, but we do need to be united, Lord. So I pray that you continue to unite us, God, and um, help us to keep a passionate heart to search uh, for you, for your love, and um, for what it is you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much for tuning into the Encounter podcast and being part of the Encounter community. We treat this podcast as a ministry. We pray for it. We pray for our listeners and we pray that the guests and the information and the gospel that we share on this channel and this media platform are always and only glorifying to Christ and Christ alone. And while we do that, guys, our podcast sometimes spans one to three hours. So if you hear anything that you disagree with while we are speaking, which is highly likely, be Berean Christians, you have a few options. The first one would be to take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. The second one would be to know that your and our authority should be and always be the scripture. So before you take anything at our word, please open the pages of your Bible, read them and find out what absolute truth looks like. Find it. And then the next step would be to reach out to us. And we would love to learn from our listeners um, as you are listening through a one-way communication to about our podcast. So please reach out to us with questions, concerns. We want to be held accountable. We want to have conversations. We want to see actual growth. But first, take a deep breath. Second, open your Bible. And three, give us a shout out. Have a blessed week.